0: Hi guys, it's Karen. Sometimes I go by my real name, Kristen. Welcome to Rational in Portland where we say everything you can't say in Portland. pdxmott on Twitter, who's Jennifer on the podcast, and I are digging into the nonprofit industrial complex here in the city of Portland. So, if you have any tips on that, or if there are any nonprofits you want us to dig into, please let us know. You can find her at PDXMOT on Twitter, PDXMOT, and you can find me at Rational in PDX. On Twitter you can send us messages. Give us tips. If you want to stay anonymous, we promise we will keep you anonymous. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend. We get new listeners via word of mouth. Talk to your neighbors. If there are friends or neighbors or people out there that want to know what the hell is going on with the city, let them know about this podcast. I do this for no money and the only purpose of it is to try to figure out what's going on with the city For myself and to the extent i learn anything i want to share that with you all so thank you for being here today i have terry anderson here with us terry has a youtube channel called tattooed biker chick and terry tell us about your other endeavors you have a podcast now too right yes i do have
1: a podcast it just
0: actually launched last weekend may 7th for my 60th
1: birthday and Happy
0: birthday. Thank
1: you. It's called Digging Through Dominoes. It can be found on YouTube. It has its own channel. I have a playlist on my main channel. And it can be found on any podcasting
0: network. And your YouTube channel is very well followed. You have a lot of followers on your YouTube channel. I when, know. Not when as many as I used to. What, hap- what do you think happened? When did they, why did they drop off? I dropped off. To I addressed some things going on in your Yeah,
1: life. I had to address some personal issues um, in my life, and then
0: my search for Joshua sort of took over, my son. And I didn't you get a lot more followers when you were searching for him? Because if you go to Terry's Tattooed Biker Chick YouTube channel, there are some heartbreaking videos on there, and that's how I came to understand who you were and know more about you is – through that YouTube feed and there are some heartbreaking videos on there of you driving around downtown mm-hmm. looking for your homeless mentally ill drug addicted son. Yes. Who? Yes. Joshua. Yes. There there are. I I I used
1: my channel at that time I was doing moto vlogging and then I there was a situation that happened and I couldn't ride my motorcycle and I began looking for Joshua. I tried to keep things going. I was looking for Joshua who had been downtown for 10 years at that time with bipolar disorder, autism and paranoid schizophrenia. It's a horrible cocktail.
0: Let's start from the I some your channel goes into some of this, but mm-hmm. just for our listeners who maybe haven't seen your channel, um So I I really kind of took a deep dive in there, and it sounds like Joshua was adopted and you noticed relatively quickly that something was wrong. As soon as they put him in my arms, I knew there was something
1: wrong. As soon as he put it, he was my fourth baby.
0: How many kids do you have?
1: We adopted six and I had two. Wow, yeah. Um, It was busy. So as soon as they put Joshua in my arms, there was a difference. I didn't know what it was. I searched for six years. I had doctors tell me, he's too smart for you. I had doctors tell me, you need parenting classes. I had doctors tell me, his intelligence level is off the charts, and you're just not going to be able to take care of him. I had doctors say, if you don't want him, I'll take him. Finally, he was diagnosed at the age of seven at OHSU. And when I found out he had autism, that was what was presenting at the time, I felt like it was kicked in the gut. Did did anybody suggest institutionalization? No, not at that time. Joshua was very high functioning. He graduated with a culinary degree. He was a self-taught musician. His songs were beautiful. He had a beautiful voice he at that point the paranoid schizophrenia and the bipolar hadn't fully manifested so joshua was the real joshua when he when he had no none of the mental illness conflicting was sweet and loving and giving and he's such an incredible boy
0: tell us more about when you received word that he had autism when he was diagnosed with autism. You say that was devastating. Tell us more about that. You didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming at all. I
1: knew there was one of my kids got in touch with me and said, Mom, you need to read this article about sensory integration dysfunction. It describes Joshua perfectly. So we made an appointment with OHSU to have him tested for sensory integration dysfunction. Autism was not on my radar. I just knew something was wrong. We took him in, and it was a quite extensive test. At the end of the testing, they came out, a big roundtable meeting with this huge team. And they said, yes, he does have sensory integration dysfunction. But for Joshua, it falls under the umbrella of autism. When I heard those words, I felt as if all the wind was knocked out of me. And the first words, there were two things that I remember saying. Are you telling me my son is going to be a janitor? I didn't know a lot about autism at the time. It was not talked about. I had not been screened, you know, much. I had no idea. So I'm like, okay, so you're telling my son's going to be a janitor? And then my second thing was, is this why we could never bond when he was a baby? And they said yes. That's heart And for mommy, that's heartbreaking. It was horrible. He couldn't, he had to be wrapped tightly. He was either on my back, um, he had no regu- regulation of what he ate. He would just eat and eat and eat and eat until he would regurgitate. So I had to measure his formula. I had, he was on my back for two years in a backpack. He slept in a, in a car seat, because that's the only way he could sleep. He had to be very tightly. So all of these things, I mean, that's not, that's not normal. Had I been a first time mother, I would have felt like the worst mother on the face of the earth. It would have been, I don't think I would have ever had another
0: baby. And at this point, you'd had three. I had had three. Three,
1: three from birth, yes. So it wasn't like, you know, I feel bad, you know, if there had been a first time mother gone, they had gone in in my circumstances. I hate to think what would have happened to them. Are they going to believe these doctors and just think that they're fools and there's nothing wrong with their child? And then their child ends up not having the life that they should because the parent didn't
0: recognize that there was a problem. I think yeah, I think that's com- I mean that's common, right? Right. It really is. And and you probably saw when you were navigating the medical odyssey with him, you probably saw parents who saw who realized things too late. Yes. I saw a lot of people in denial. There's
1: nothing wrong with my child. They're just special. Yes, they're very special, but they're showing signs of autism. Um, Signs now that we know are very typical for autism. At the time when we had VHS, VHS tapes, he was lining them up. He would play with one wheel of a car. He had to have a special fork, which looked like all the other forks, but. For him it was his Batman fork. So there were things like that. With all of our children, we made them look us in the eye. This is something I feel horrible about. We made our children look us in the eye when we spoke with them. Joshua wouldn't do it. And it was, you're going to look at me in the eye. Within about a year later, or when we went through and found out that he had autism, we found out it actually hurt him to look us in the eye.
0: I feel horrible. I didn't realize that that was the reason behind the lack of eye contact with autistic kids. Tell us more about that.
1: I don't know if it is with every autistic child. I know it is with my son or was with my son. He grew out of that. He was very high functioning with lots of brothers and sisters. I think that helped a lot. I think it hurt a lot. it was funny. We would. We, he was the only child. I did not homeschool, and sending him to school, the teachers would say, "He's very robotic. He doesn't know how to answer." So we went through and tried to teach Joshua com- communication skills. Um, when someone says, "Hi, Joshua, how are you today?" "Fine. Thank you for asking." But he would, "Fine. Thank you for asking." So. <laughs> We had to work on it a few different ways, and we really worked on his, or I should say I did, worked on his social skills and how to, you know, autism really limits you. And how, just to
0: give him a little bit more to work with. Why did you decide to send him to school after you'd homeschooled your other kids?
1: <laughs> you want the, the truth
0: is either he or I would be dead.
1: He was so challenging. It was too much. It was too much for him. It was too much for me. It was too much for the other kids. And Joshua loved school. He would get on his bicycle and he would be there 30 minutes early. He hated missing school. He loved it. And the teachers loved him. But also the flip side of that is... I was calling the school weekly because he was being bullied. And I couldn't get him to stop. And at one point, I went in and I remember saying, what do I need to do? Put a cast on his head so you know my son has a disability? Why is this kid that pushed him into a locker being suspended, but you're going to expel Joshua for defending himself? You really want to go
0: down that road with me? So they were threatening expulsion of your autistic son. Yeah. After he was attacked. After he was attacked and thrown into a locker. Are you comfortable saying which? What? What? It was this public school, North Clackamas. Wow. Yeah. And what? How? How? What ultimately happened with that?
1: What ultimately happened? I had a meeting with them, and they they said, if you look through your student handbook, we have zero tolerance for, um, oh, what was the term? I can't remember the term now. It was like physical aggression. And I said, you also have a zero tolerance bullying policy, correct? Yes. What does that have to do with this? Here's my catalog. I had documented every time I had called the school who I spoke with, what had happened, and the kid that had hurt him. I said, what has been done about any of this? They had nothing to say. They were in a corner. Josh was back in school.
0: So he ultimately, that's good. So he ultimately wasn't expelled, but only because you were so carefully documenting and advocating for him, and with a less capable, less intellectually competent mother, Mm -hmm. other kids would have been expelled and, and left to sort of rot. They would, and they would, it would not only affect the child, it would affect
1: the entire family. Because if you go, if you have a child with a disability that a mother that didn't have the advantages that I had, and you're telling her these things, she's going to feel like a bad mom. I didn't mind being hated at the school. I was taking up for my son. You're not going to make me feel like a bad mom. I've been there, done that. It's not going to bother me. But some of these women that I do know, they are intimidated by the principle that says, this is the way it's going to go. Oh, really? I don't think so. And I don't like to get into issues with people. I I, I would prefer to avoid confrontation unless it comes to my children. If it comes to my children, all bets are off. For some reason, Josh was placed in my family. I had to take care of him.
0: What do you think it is that separates separates you from those parents who maybe are not as good at advocating for their kids? That's a really good question. I think, and, and what what can parents who are maybe struggling learn from you? in that situation? Truthfully,
1: I think the reason I'm able to advocate for my son or advocate for him when he was alive was I had to pretty much fight for myself growing up. I was, I have CPTSD from my childhood. Just for our listeners, what is C? That's complex post traumatic stress syndrome, and generally it starts in early childhood, infancy, preverbal, infancy. Oh it, yes, um, if you don't attach to your mother, your mother doesn't attach to you, and there's contempt and all of these other things, you're kind of left floating. And there were incidents. Luckily, I did have a support base. It was very fluid, but I did have a support base and. I told this on my podcast the other day. I encountered a bully that my mother would not take care of. I was like six years old. And I'm thinking, how can I get re- around this bully? OK, I'm going to put rocks in my, school- in my lunchbox, and I'm going to just hit him. Because no one else is going to do anything. I'm going to have to do something. So I think from an early age, I just sort of inherited that, um, or had to come up with realizing no one's got my back. And I took it in one direction. I think some people, maybe that came from my situation or a situation like mine, may be more afraid. Um, they've been kept under fear, or I sort of fought against it.
0: So you were able to take take that take something that could have been construed as a real set. I mean, was certainly a real setback, and use use it to your success in life? That's
1: what I've recently tried to do. See, you know, the the cliché, you see the silver lining. I don't look for the silver lining. I look for the storm. If I look at the silver lining, what the heck am I going to learn about the storm? Not one thing. Not a thing. So with my kids, I have fought for them all of their lives, and Joshua especially.
0: And when... Joshua also struggled with mental illness, correct? Yes, he did. When did those diagnoses begin?
1: The bipolar started in late teens. We started seeing... I had him in therapy weekly with highly specialized doctors.
0: That's typical, right? Teen onset?
1: For bipolar disorder? yes. Yes. Late teen, early 20s, generally late teen. And... He had that,
0: we were working through all of that, trying to, he had. How did you know there was something wrong for the moms out there who are wondering if their kids are struggling with mental illness? How did you, what were the signs? His rage,
1: he had rage from the time he was about, I think the first time he attacked one of my other kids, he was about four years old, he pulled her hair out
0: so this kind of thing started very early. It started
1: very early, but it was very rare. It was, it was something we didn't really take seriously. The kids sort of made a joke of, we need to make a movie about when Joshua attacks because it was out of nowhere. And then those became much more frequent. And then he started to attack me. Then he started to attack his dad. Like physically hitting you? or Oh, he, yes, it was, I'm going
0: to kill you. And did you fear for your life? I did. I did. Oh, my God. What did you do? Buy a lock for your door? or Yes. There were locks from on my doors. All the
1: girls had locks on their doors. He didn't really mess with the boys much, but all the girls had locks on their doors. So you were a
0: prisoner in your own home.
1: Yeah, I was. And, and your family was. Yeah. And, you know, it's very conflicting because I love my son, but at the same time, it's He loves to cook. He has this whole cutlery set. And, you know, these weird things, you watch these things on TV, this stuff goes through your mind. Oh, my gosh, I love my kid. What can I do? Um, I remember there was a time that he started getting and stealing my underwear.
0: When was this? How old was he?
1: Oh, my gosh, this was probably coming into puberty. Oh, my gosh. And I was, at first, I was, like, really weirded out by it. I wouldn't even know where to where to start. I was, yeah, I didn't know where to start. It, thankfully, he had been seeing a, a therapist since he was about eight years old. So you could address it with his, his therapist. And he addressed it with her, and she sent us to one of the nation's top um, sex therapists who is, was, he's retired now, in Portland. Oh, wow. And we worked with him for years, but it just came to be, that was a part of who Joshua was. And after being weirded out, I was just also really me. pissed off because these were expensive lingerie <laughs> sets and I'm thinking, dude!
0: Priorities. Yes,
1: priorities. <laughs> these are handmade from France and I don't want your hairy butt in my, my underwear. Was it,
0: was it that uh, uh, what is it? A Jean Provocateur? That, yeah. from, yes. yes. And <laughs>
1: And um there were some more Mar- Marley expensive. Stuckers and yeah, very very expensive. I you know, I had a that's a whole well, that's a whole nother show, but uh, <laughs> that was something that we looked at too. We had um his his um psychiatrist and his psych uh, specialist. We were working with him. I mean, I was at the doctor with him at least once a week, sometimes two, three times a week, with the goal of not to change who he was, but to give him the opportunity to fit into the world a little more.
0: You just wanted him to be eventually a functioning adult.
1: I did. That's what I wanted for all my kids, to be active, good American citizens, to be able to be happy and take care of themselves. And for Joshua... I think if it had not been for the paranoid schizophrenia and fighting the city of Portland, I think Joshua would be a functioning, booked musician right now. He taught himself guitar by ear. He was a songwriter, graduated with a culinary degree. The kid was far from stupid. But when it really got bad when the paranoid schizophrenia took over. And when,
0: when was the schizophrenia diagnosis? I actually, I found a notebook that he had, and he was
1: probably, oh gosh, 20 years old, 21 years old, something like that. And he was still, he was living with you at the time? He
0: had decided to live on the streets at that time. Oh. And then, so how were you able to get him diagnosed if he was on the streets? Well, this is is kind of where my problem with portland comes in. And this is what you were referring to when you said the issue with the city, fighting with the city. Yes. Um, Joshua,
1: I would bring him home to stay with me. And he would leave after 3 or 4 days when he started to hear voices or I didn't know they were voices at at the time. He started to get agitated and I knew it was time for him to go. Well, um I found a notebook, a journal, and he it, it was it it was confusing for me. Part of it was very well organized, very well thought out goals, although not realistic. It was the autistic side speaking. They were very legible, very clear. On other pages, I found scribblings and spiralings and numbers and very written very deeply. So I brought Joshua to me and I said, Joshua, I just found your notebook. This is so cool. Your writings, I see you have great goals. I'm proud of you. This is wonderful. But I don't understand this part here. Can you understand? Can you explain this to me? oh, that's when God's talking to me and the angels are speaking to me. I said, well, why is it so scribbled? He said, because they speak so quickly. I have to write really fast to get everything down. That's when I knew there was a a really something much more, I don't know really the word, um, much more difficult to manage than we had known. At that point, I went to try and get psyche valves
0: must have been so painful for you to hear.
1: Well, yeah, because if you think about it, there are all these components. You have this child that you love. You have this child that you've protected since birth. You have this child who is stealing from you and threatening to kill you. You've got this child that is now showing symptoms of mental illness. I didn't know what to
0: do. I just started making phone calls. And when you found the journal, was he on the street? He was on the street, but he had he would come back and
1: forth. He would come back and forth probably for the first, uh, he was 18, he was 28 when he died, probably for
0: the f- first eight years he was back and forth. When when was the first time you realized he was out on the street? He had come out at me to try to kill me. Um,
1: He was also going at his dad, and so we were separated. I was on one side of the island. His dad was on the other side of the island. This is in the kitchen. In the kitchen, and there was another kid trying to keep Joshua at bay and another kid's calling 911, which I tell you what, raising all of these kids and the cops are at my house all the time, I was freaked out I was going to open the door and the entire cops crew was going to be there every time. They show up very – they know the situation. Um, they said, "This is you. he can't stay here tonight. He's too worked up. This is too dangerous. Someone's going to get hurt. We need to take him to a shelter. And before that, when they would come over, they would give us, they would tell us to get flex cuffs, pepper spray, things that would stop him but would not be lethal and would not, Leave any lasting it was
0: to protect everyone. And how heartbreaking for a mom it's to, have to arm herself. To yeah. get to get tips from the police about how to protect herself from her son. It was horrible. And why couldn't they take him to a hospital? Why'd they have to take him to a shelter? That's a really good question. Hospital That just seems so wrong. Yeah, let's throw him into a shelter situation. Yeah. He'll get kicked. Yeah. I bet what happened is he got kicked out immediately. He got into a fight. Yes, exactly. And, and he that's was kicked what out. And then he was on the street. Well, one of the things, the day after Should've he got kicked out,
1: I made sure he had his phone. I made sure he had all the wrong things when I sent him downtown. I didn't realize at that point, if they have possessions, they are going to be beaten and everything's going to be taken.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well you didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. You probably thought that the police would try to protect him or send him to a nice place where he'd have some kind of some kind of care or services. Yes,
1: I was very naive at that point. I did get a hold of him the next day and Joshua's thinking was, you know, I have it's you have to remember his thinking was not on par with ours. It was very different. And I said, Joshua, you can come home if you agree to go to therapy and take your medications. Oh no, mom, I love it here. I'm gonna stay.
0: Did he did he say what he loved about it?
1: He didn't really go into it. I think he loved the freedom. I think uh, he loved the freedom. I think he loved the creative creativity that he had. He had met up with uh, with musicians. They were all playing guitars. He demanded to take his Fender guitar, which I'm like, oh my! God. I mean, you probably Joshua, knew
0: immediately. That I knew it was, it was it gone. be gone in ten seconds.
1: Yes, and it was. It was. So. Sub- at, at that point, we would buy him cheap guitars so he could keep playing. That was his therapy.
0: When did the drugs start?
1: The drugs started, that's an interesting question. I had asked myself, and I really did not know until after his death, and I pulled 6,000 medical pages
0: So you didn't know he was on drugs until he, after he died?
1: Well, I knew he was on drugs, but I didn't know when they started. Oh, wow.
0: I got it. He was, he was doing things like. So they started before you realized it. And you figured that out when you got his medical records. Yes.
1: Well, he was, he was smoking pot, which, you know, I can't, what am I going to do? He's smoking pot. Okay. What is he going to do? Kill a bag of Cheetos? And when, when did that start? That started probably the second year that he was on the streets.
0: Oh, okay. So uh, he's out of high school, and he's out of high school.
1: He's got his degree in culinary
0: arts. He is. So it was actually, I would say, on average, late onset drug use.
1: It was. It was very late, much later than I thought. He start. I knew at one point he was using meth, and.
0: And this was I, all after he was on the streets because it started yes. with the pot after he was on the yes. streets.
1: You know, at home, he wouldn't take an Advil. He wouldn't take ibuprofen. He wouldn't take acetaminophen. He would not take anything for any pain because he's going to work his way through it. Wow. And then he's shooting meth. Well, this is his rational, or his rationalizing this, I'm sorry, rationalizing this in his brain his thinking was, if I take meth, I can stay
0: up and no one will steal my stuff. I think it's a Week. I'll do some research and put it in the show notes. But somebody's, one of the papers has been doing some reporting on this. And that's their, that, that's what they've come up with as well. That the reason this meth, particularly the super toxic P2P meth, is sort of running through the homeless community is so that they can stay awake and protect their things. And it's been infiltrated. And protect themselves, I think. Yeah,
1: but what they're not realizing, it's got fentanyl in it now. Oh yeah, everything does. Yeah. You you have no idea what you're getting on the streets. Yep. My gosh, when I was a kid, you could you could get anything, and you knew that it was safe. No one was putting stuff in it. Not that I did much. I mean, I I would smoke a little pot, but that was about it. Today, I would be afraid to do anything because you just don't know. Down the street from our house, they're burning a house down because it was a meth lab. And you just you just don't know. And so Joshua started shooting up. He had a lot of infections because of it. I was called. I made sure I had ROIs, uh, release of information on file, With all the hospitals, the police officers, with everyone. So you could kind of keep track of him and figure out what was going on. Yes, and I also had a power of attorney, all of which were ignored. After I I did not know that until I got all of the medical records. Uh, One of the times I remember very, very vividly, we went into the emergency department. Joshua had tried to come at me, took him to the emergency department and let them know I need a psych eval because I needed to get him an SSI. I need to get him off the streets. One more kid you're not going to have to pay for. We can afford to get him a home, or an, not a home, but an apartment, pay for his treatment, get him on SSDI. He can take care of himself. You're not going to have to worry about it. And the doctor's response was, I'm not going to take his rights away. Where, where, what
0: hospital is this at? This was
1: at, at that time, that was Legacy Emanuel. I looked at that man. But you had power, and you had power of attorney. I had power of attorney. No one cares. No one cares in Portland. They do not care, is what I have found out. In my experience, I can't speak for everyone. I can only speak for myself. The man looked at me and said that. And I said, so you're going to take him home with you tonight and you're going... Because he was going to discharge him to the street and he gave me right. orders not to take him home. Right. So you're going to take him home with you and let him sleep down the hall from your wife and your children. And he gave me this look. He said, I'm still not taking his rights. I said, cognitively, he's 13 years old. Well, according to his paperwork, he's however old he was at the time. He was an illegal adult. I said, so um, you're going to be notifying the parents... Of whomever right, whoever's right, he has taken, because he will victimize and will continue to take. Yes, he has been. He had been read. Oh gosh, Kristen, this was, this was so horrible. On August twenty seventh of twenty twenty one was the last day I saw my son alive, and that was because a social worker called me and said Terry. Joshua's laying in the street. The only thing that I can understand that he's saying is, I need my mom. I need my mom. I need my mom. So I get down there, and it's heartbreaking. I knew the end was going to be near. He was completely, it was not my son. He was a shell. And uh, I'm sorry, what was <laughs>
0: Where was oh, it no, going? it's okay. Um, he, this is when they called the, I think it was the day, maybe the day before he died, the social worker, and you went down. Did you go down there?
1: Yeah, the social worker called. I went down there. I sat with Joshua for hours.
0: Do, do you have an understanding of how he ended up interfacing with this social worker? Because um, it would be great if everybody had somebody keeping track of them. I don't know if they all do. but Well,
1: what I did from the very beginning... I started finding out who the sh- who the shelters, where the shelters were, who ran the shelters, who was in charge of the shelters. I found out the caseworkers. I got made sure my name was put through the system. I was calling in if I didn't see him for three weeks, four weeks. I would call in, put in a missing re- persons report, and I would circulate it on all my Facebook pages with his picture. The police were overwhelmed. They said, "I cannot believe you're doing this. No one does this." I said, "This is my son. He was placed in my arms for my protection, not for me to ignore." So I got—I have probably 30 phone numbers in my phone, uh, and it just says "knows Joshua." No idea who they are, but they would text me pictures. They would let me know if he was okay. They—he w- would use the phone, one of their phones, to call me. Um, but it was, it was a nightmare. I just made sure I kept going. When I first started looking for him, I remember the first time I came down town looking for him. I was going to bring him socks, which was not a good idea. I was going to bring him a sleeping bag, which was not a good idea.
0: When you say um, not a good idea, why, why is that? Because I think a lot of people out there are bringing socks and sleeping bags to a lot of these homeless people, and would be confused by that.
1: They're beaten. Every time I brought Joshua something besides actual food that I saw him
0: consume in front of me, he was
1: beaten. For
0: the things? Yes. He was... So it was like you were putting, now you know, that's like putting a target on somebody's back. It is, and
1: I refuse to give money to anyone. If you're hungry, I'll buy you a hamburger. I'll buy you a nice meal. But I'm sorry, I'm not going to put you in a position that you could be killed. And Joshua was pretty seriously injured a number of times over that. But the homeless, when I went down there, they wouldn't speak to me at first. And I had to sort of ingratiate myself. One of the things, I remember one of the guys, I think they have, it's like called pot lunch, I think, or somewhere around Old Town. I went up and there were some homeless there I had never seen before. And I said, can you guys do me a favor? And one of the men was very ugly to me. And he said, yeah, pretty white lady in a Cadillac. You're going to get anything you want. And I said, actually, I'm not. And I always tried not to cry, but I did. I said, what I want is my son. Have you seen him? He's mentally ill. He's homeless. I need to know he's okay." That man whistled up. And people flocked to him. He said, This woman is looking for her son. We will help her. Wow. So for ten years, you know, I didn't realize there's this hierarchy. They hide them at first. They don't know who you are. You have to build a relationship. You have to trust these people, but you have to be smart about it because there's some very dangerous
0: areas. Well, and these people are dangerous mm-hmm. and unpredictable and they're on drugs and themselves and are struggling with their own illnesses. And so they are. I do have to say no traumas and
1: yes, yes, and I you know trauma is, I think is a huge thing behind this with, and I would separate that out of from mental illness. Um, right. Yes. Mental illness to me is very organic. Trauma is nurture. Sure, and not everybody who thereof.
0: suffered from trauma has a mental illness.
1: Correct. Correct. Um, There's only been one time I've had to protect myself. Or actually, I didn't protect myself. I needed to protect myself. I went down for Joshua's last birthday that he was alive. So that would be last June, which is, uh, what, 2021, with a friend of mine. And we had five dozen cupcakes from Fat Cupcakes. And I didn't stop to think, okay, Terry, these people are a mess. They're going to see sugar you may be in trouble. Well, what happened was I got out of the my car and my friend was with me. We have these boxes of these beautiful cupcakes. We're looking for Joshua. I'm yelling for Joshua. Come out, come out. Joshua, I've brought you things for your birthday. And there was someone that was not from this area. They had just recently relocated here that was homeless and totally out of it. And said, so I want to, it was just extremely rude. I want a cupcake. And I'm like, no. Are these I'm looking for my son. And he got more and more aggressive. Then he attacked me. came at me three times with a knife. Oh, my God. Yeah. And generally, I have a permit to carry. Generally, I'm armed when I come down. But I didn't that day because I knew I was going to have cupcakes in my arms. I had no way to protect myself. The homeless came out and took the guy down and said, she's looking for her son. What are you doing? This is a mother who wants to take care of her son on her, his birthday. What a relief. I have no idea what happened to the guy. Never saw him again, but they took care of it. They took care of me because they knew I was taking care of my son. Once they had trust in me, they gave me all the help I needed.
0: Well, and they, they must have known after at least the first few times that you weren't there to hurt them or harass them or mess up what they had going on in really any way that your sole objective was to find your son my sole yes my my
1: sole objective i knew joshua could not come home it was too dangerous but i needed him to see his mom loved him i needed him to realize he was not one of the forgotten i needed him to know I think of you every day. I needed him to see my eyes that I loved him. He would walk. We're in downtown Portland right now. I live on the east side. The girl that does my nails called me one day and this was in the Clackamas Promenade and she said, "Oh my gosh, Terry, Josh was here. Josh was here. Josh was here. Come get him now." I dropped everything. I went At first, I didn't recognize Joshua. A lot of times, the autistic have a very distinctive walk. They like to walk sort of tiptoe. And I wasn't seeing that because whomever this was had this big uh, blanket around them. And I called his name. He instantly turned to me and came to me. And I took him to Stanford's, got him a nice lunch. He he wanted creme brulee. Of course, he wanted everything that was on the menu. (laughs) And creme brulee, he loved making creme brulee, and we just had a really nice visit. And when the time came, I had to take him back to Max. I was crying so bad, I couldn't, I couldn't see what. I've never used Max. I, cu- I didn't, I couldn't get my credit card in. I didn't know what was going on. I'm crying. People around me are looking at me like, what is wrong with her? One gentleman finally came over, and he helped me. And Josh was like, thank you, Mom. Mom, I love you. He looked at me with the eyes like, I want to come home. And I, I said... I'm sure there was part of
0: you that wanted to pick him up and...
1: I wanted to take him home. Take him home. Put him in a, his baby sling and just hold him close to my heart forever. And he turned around as he was going to Max, and he put his hands up in a heart shape around his face, and he blew me a kiss and said, I love you, Mom. That was the last time I really had a cohesive, coherent conversation with Joshua. And that was how long before he passed? Probably three years. Um, What I discovered in the medical records, the last three years of his life, he started using... Gabapentin, which I don't understand. Uh, He was using amphetamine, methamphetamine, and heroin. Now, he had never done heroin, so I'm not, but those were showing in his latter screenings, talk screens. Um, In my personal opinion, after reading through his medical records, it was too unbearable for him to be down here. He was too paranoid to come home. I mean, I was scanning doctors and social workers. I told him I had an app on my phone that I just sort of made myself. And I would scan these people so he would know that they weren't chipped. And he would talk to them. And he got to where he was afraid of me. He, When I saw him that last time, I had to answer a series of questions so he could identify me as his mother, and it, it was horrifying.
0: It was horrifying. And to get no help from Portland at all. Yet you were talking about the fight with the <sighs> city. Did that have to do with the hospital saying, I'm not gonna take his rights away, or was that something separate? The hospital was told by the city or by the state and
1: as were the police. The police really gave me most information. They said, our hands are tied. We're not allowed to help you. The hospitals. Did they say why? Because he's an adult. I said, no, he's not. You talk to him and you tell me that he's an adult. Not
0: a functioning adult. No. What, what if he was your mother who had dementia? Would exactly. Would they help you then? really. I mean, what if he was intellectually incapacitated? That's what I don't get. You know, he 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 was intellectually Func- functionally, yeah, yeah.
1: He when I started looking to medical records, they confirmed everything I had told him. Paranoid are schizo- them. Paranoid schizophrenia, bipolar, mood disorders, autistic, uh, drug user. hears voices, gender dysphoria. Um, oh my goodness, this is
0: a. It was a litany of yeah. of things, and they also had. I mean, this kid almost—it's almost like I mean, Terry. Without you, Joshua never had a chance. With, with if had he been adopted by anybody else, I'm convinced. Had his birth mother kept him, I mean, you should feel really good. You loved him so much, and you were, you were a fabulous mother. And you did everything in your power for him, and that's all you could do. I tried. I tried my best. And,
1: I mean, this kid didn't have a chance. He didn't have a chance. And had he stayed with his birth mother, he was very difficult as an infant. And here I was, 31 years old when I got him. She was just 15. I don't think Joshua would have survived her. No way. No because way.
0: This was the first time Me, I ever had. Neither to, of them would have survived each other.
1: I don't think so. I, this was the first time I had to put a baby in a crib and walk out of the house and just let him cry. I because I didn't trust myself. I had to calm myself down because it wasn't just a cry; it was a piercing scream, and we didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. So, you know, if we flash forward. Six weeks, well, August 27th uh, August 26th was the last day I saw him. He, he really couldn't speak. He was laughing at something in the air. He was um, urinating on himself. At first I thought he was sitting in water, but the puddle just kept growing. He was covered in feces. Um, on the way home, I just prayed, God, take him home. I can't make it peaceful, quick, quiet painless but take my son out of this hell hole it is horrible six weeks to the day my other son came downstairs and woke me up and he was just ashen and he said mom there are two police officers here that need to speak with you now well, I knew what it was you know I said is it Joshua and he said you need to come upstairs now and I felt bad for them I was at the point with Joshua I wanted him out of pain I wanted him out of torment Portland wouldn't let me take care of him
0: I was if I had taken him I would have been arrested so I'm trying to understand was it the city and the state you're it sounds like that is saying that we're saying we you're not allowed to make decisions for this man and we won't either yes it was. It was everyone. It was a
1: city. So it the was state. every
0: layer of government, really, in yeah. Oregon and Portland, in particular, that was saying, "We we will not be stepping in to intervene in this young man's life in in any way." Exactly. Even it though all has to come from him.
1: It all has to come from him. Even though, looking at the documents, boy is the use the term boy is cognitively fourteen years old. Mother's phone number, mother's phone number, mother's phone number. Mother is very involved. Mother, 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 mother. Yet I never got a call. And there were completed psych evals in there that I could have taken to SSI, and that would have helped me get my son off the street, and maybe he would still be alive today. And then we come to the wonderful part of, and I don't mean to be offensive in any way. This is just the way I feel when I read Ted Wheeler made the statement that the homeless hurt Portland's brand, I came unglued. Doesn't he? Isn't he supposed to run Portland? Doesn't he have some say in how these people are taken care of? Why are they on the streets? Why? Why does no one care?
0: Why does no one want to care? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm. Looking at people out the window right now, walking past tents and not even looking at them. Right. There, you for one thing, the tents are ubiquitous. A lot of the time, I don't even see them anymore. No. And and you don't see bodies anymore. Some people. I was walking um, with a colleague, and there was a man lying next to this building that we're in right now, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, curled up against it not moving and we commented to each other that he was it's possible he was dead yeah Yeah. and and I walk past people like that every day and
1: and that brings up a point Joshua's death was caught on video by whom well you know where uh the Salvation Army is on second there's a building where that is right next across the street Joshua was on the side of Salvation Army, and the camera from the other building was on Joshua.
0: Oh, my gosh. How did you come to find this out?
1: The medical examiner. They oh. are angels. They are angels. They are the most compassionate people I have ever spoken with. And the, the investigator that I was speaking with said that as soon as he got under his blanket, there was no more movement. So that leads me to believe that Joshua had been suicidal in the past, that he was tired of this, he couldn't take it anymore, or the demons inside his head were too, too great and they outnumbered him and he felt powerless. When you have the toxicology came back and he had amphetamine meth, gabapentin and heroin that's a pretty we have fentanyl no fentanyl which surprised me that's shocking i it, it it appears to me someone is out to kill people because the fentanyl 2 grains of fentanyl from what i've read what i understand is enough to kill a grown person
0: yeah i i think that's the consensus yeah
1: yeah um i was shocked that there was no fentanyl I was shocked that there was heroin. Uh, Joshua was very against a lot of things.
0: Um, do they know? Was it was it the combination that killed him, or did they? Was it one in particular? Do they know? They can't. They can't tell me. Oh, they, so they don't know. I've put in a release. I mean, a
1: request for information. Probably about six weeks ago. Did you get the report, the medical
0: examiner's report?
1: No. I'm still waiting for it. You have power of attorney. Yeah. I'm still waiting for it. It has to go. They're telling me it has to go from this doctor to this doctor to this doctor to this doctor, and then it'll be sent to me. And I'm thinking, why? You've got it on your computer. Email it to me. This is my son. Yes. I want to see what the levels were. I had found out from his medical records that he had had that year of 2021 in January, he had had a heart attack.
0: Wow. Wow. So
1: we don't Do they know. Do you think
0: it was methamphetamine induced?
1: It could be he did have heart problems as a baby. So it could be a confluence of things. It or... could be just this amalg- amalgamation yes. of, of everything. Yes. My and personal the feeling. Yes. And the stress. My personal feeling, Joshua could not fight anything off. I think he took his life. Um, and that, I remember when the police officers left my house. I didn't know what to do. What do you do? Who do you call? Yeah, where do you start, really? Yeah, it is. It's where do you start. So I didn't even have... I mean, were you the, in shock? I was in shock. I didn't even have the the mindset to, to think, how do I get him from the medical examiner's office home? Cremation is not anything I would have considered before. But with Joshua... I wanted him with me at all times so I knew where he was and that so that's what we had decided on we took him to a funeral or had him transported to a funeral home and the four of us his father my daughter and my son went to say our goodbyes and see him we cut locks of hair I remember touching his his hair and it was so soft and he just looked so he looked peaceful and rested and at home and when I knew all this was going to happen I knew he was going to be cremated I knew we had picked out the urn Joshua loved long stem roses and as I read through a lot of his writings I saw that he identified with a rose with this beautiful flower that was covered with thorns. So we had a mother of pearl rose put on his urn. And what really shocked me or took me off guard was when my husband walked in with Joshua and handed him to me. I sat with him for hours, rocking him and crying and apologizing and telling him he's safe, he's with his mama he's where he belongs then I had to call well no I had called his birth uh grandmother we found out that he had died and that's hard to do and there's a lot of guilt with that they had entrusted I, I me understand
0: that yeah and, and now you're having to call and say I let he's you dead. down and of course they're saying well how did that happen well he's you know he was on the streets and apparently overdosed on drugs, that doesn't, yeah, I mean, that would be difficult. Well, one thing that we had in our favor,
1: his grandmother and I had kept in touch since his birth because we were noticing very similar patterns with him and his birth mother. And as she grew older, she started to show a lot of the same things as Joshua. So his grandmother was really there for me but then having to call and tell them, I felt like I let them down. I felt like I let my son down. One thing I know for a fact is I did everything within my power. And had I had had nurses call me. I have friends across the country. Get him on an airplane. We'll have him hospitalized.
0: Do you know of based on that and your conversations with your friends, do you know of states that are that take care of this in a more rational way and would actually hospitalize have hospitalized him? Well, my friend that, the one
1: friend that was really after me to get him on a state, she was in a nurse in North Carolina, South Carolina and Georgia. And I'm assuming, because we couldn't go into it in depth at that point, that a family member saying, my family member is unable to take care of themselves. I mean, one look at my son and you would know he was unable to take care of himself. And he could have been had an involuntary hold put on. Um, And that's very frustrating. My other son, Michael, we just met four of his sisters last, birth sisters last summer and their mother is a social worker and she was mortified by the way Oregon treats the homeless tell say more about that in if I understood her correctly she lives in Wisconsin she works in Illinois they are very very involved they get them hotel rooms they make sure they're taken care of I don't think there's as many homeless in Wisconsin because it does snow quite a bit as there is in Portland but she was she was mortified she said I can't believe they treat them like cattle. Oh worse. I mean yeah, it's worse barns. than cattle. It's worse than cattle. Cattle
0: are forced to be in barns. Yes. And and they're provided food and they're not allowed to leave the barn, right? Thank you. you. You just
1: reminded me of what I was going to tell you a minute ago that oh, I yeah. had forgotten. All right. So the day I came down and I saw Joshua, a transition team pulled up. And I think the only reason they pulled up – What is the transition it's team? trans transition projects. Is that a
0: nonprofit or something?
1: I have no idea who they are because they won't call me back anymore now that my son is dead and they promised that they would make him a priority and do everything – to take care of him.
0: It's infuriating.
1: It's infuriating. Um, But he gave me a lot of information that I told him everything about Joshua. Uh, This gentleman, I think the only reason, truthfully, they stopped. They see someone like me. I didn't have any makeup on at the time, but you could tell I wasn't homeless. I had a very nice car. I was sitting on the street with with this boy. That was in filth, that was rocking, that was just basically like a vegetable. They stopped, and I found out that the director of Transition Projects was in the car with him. And the one gentleman was telling me, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. It's so horrible. He had everyone come out and listen to my story, the people that were in the car, and they're all mortified. The next day, I got a phone call, and he told me that years ago, Joshua should have been at the top of the list for priority housing, mental evaluation. Of course. Hospitalization. Whole
0: wraparound services. Yes,
1: because he had this. He had parental involvement, his arrest record, his health record. He was red flagged from every shelter in Portland. Every box they needed to be checked off to make him a priority had been checked off, but yet no one in this area cared enough to do their job.
0: Did this person have any insight into how Joshua slipped through the cracks?
1: Well, no. He was just – he appeared infuriated with this and assured me Joshua would be his top priority. I didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks. I called, said – You know, have you heard anything about my son? Oh, thanks for reminding me. And then my next contact
0: was... So much for top priority. Yeah,
1: top priority doesn't really mean anything, unfortunately. I mean, you can look at the buildings around here. I see what was once a beautiful city that is... It really is apocalyptic.
0: That's completely accurate, yeah. It's
1: apocalyptic, and... When I messaged this gentleman to tell him my son had died, his words were, oh, my gosh, what happened? And I said, they found his body in front of the uh, Salvation Army. He had been there for two days, they believe. Never heard another word
0: from him. That was it. And the other strange thing is this patchwork of these services Who knows what this... You don't even know what this transition project is. It's just... What is the city doing?
1: I mean... That's what I want to know. I want to know where the funding is going. That they're getting...
0: Billions of dollars. Yes. the B. Yeah. Billions. And now it's COVID money. Now they're pouring COVID money into all these things. You know what? Joshua was homeless,
1: tested every time he was in the hospital... Joshua didn't have COVID. Never got COVID. I find that a little interesting. Um, I'm not discounting COVID. I know it is very real, and I've lost friends to COVID. Maybe but here's because my he was son. Outside. You know, I don't know what it was. Uh, but where's the money? Where's the money? A few years ago, do you remember when the teachers, we were, it's more than a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago or so. Teachers were having a problem and making a big fuss because they were not getting paid what they deserved. I went to the ballet. I think that happens every year. It it probably does. But this particular time, it was just really... I stopped watching news probably about three years ago. Because it took over the... It was hijacking the news. Everything was hijacking the news. I'll get headlines. But I was at the ballet, and I'm looking at the donors. Most of them were private donors. And then I see... Portland had donated millions of dollars to the arts, which I think is, is a very good thing to do. But I think it should not be prioritized well, over the lives of people.
0: Yeah, it's a great thing to do if you've got all your other ducks lined up. Right. If you've solved your other problems. Right. You know, it's almost to me like
1: we need to spend this money we have in any way we can so we can get more money next year. We need to spend our allotment, our quota, so we can ask for more money from the federal government next year.
0: My opinion. And on what? I mean, like you said, where in the hell is it going? Because it is not going to solve any of this. And to the extent it's going to any programs related to homelessness, they're, they're not fixing it, and none of them are keeping – we're not getting metrics on any of this stuff.
1: We're not, and one there's thing no – accountability. There's not. One thing I found out that I – and it may be my opinion and the way I saw things. To me, it does not appear that the myriad amount of places that say they take care of the homeless, they don't cooperate with each other.
0: No, they're all separate, and there's tons of them. Mm-hmm. There's so many. I don't even know if the city can keep track of who it's giving money to. I don't think this – I am so ready to leave Portland.
1: Um, this isn't the city I fell in love with. I, in my opinion, hold Portland in Oregon directly responsible for the death of my son, in my opinion. I fought them for 10 years. My son could, I have a lot of musician friends. My son was so good on the guitar and with his lyrics, had he been properly medicated, he would have gigs every night with these people. They're wonderful people. They've heard his music, and some musicians can't get back with me because it will be weeks. And they said, Terry, it was just too moving, too emotional. His lyrics are so beautiful. And as a songwriter, I can tell where that pain's coming from. And I'm just looking at it. You know, one thing, I've never questioned my faith. I've never questioned what I've done. I've questioned why in the hell has Portland decided they're going to treat the homeless like garbage, but yet not allow a mother that's willing to take care of her own son to take care
0: of him. Wouldn't that take it like something off someone's caseload? Yeah, why wouldn't they use, like, guardianship laws on the books or something? Why wouldn't they suggest that you go that route? What about this uh, social worker that you were in touch with? Did the social worker express any kind of dissatisfaction with the way that the system abandons these people to the streets? She couldn't really... verbalize it i could tell because she probably works for the city
1: yes she works for the state she works at the state um, sure yeah um and joshua aged out of her program but she liked joshua one thing about my son i brought him home one day and he fell in love i have a service dog big german shepherd named karma and joshua fell in love with karma well, when he, you know, I had mentioned that when he would be missing for certainly the time, I would circulate flyers on Facebook. I would put word out through the police for a missing person. One of my friends that I got the German Shepherd from, she said, oh, my gosh, Terry, I know him. I said, how do you know him? I used to book him into jail all the time. He is the sweetest, most wonderful, polite child I've ever seen. His smile would light the heart of an angel. That is something I hold on to because my true boy was in there. And the way I see when I saw him the last time, what I saw was my child was in like, you know, those plastic Easter egg cups covered in dark feathers, and he couldn't get out, no one was helping him trim those feathers back.
0: Why Why not ship him off to another state, to Georgia, to, I mean, it, was it your, did you know that he just, he wasn't gonna go, like, and what if he had to, I guess, at that point, he's, how do you even get him to the airport? I mean, how do you get him on the plane? How do you make sure he doesn't have an event on the plane? I guess you would go with him. I don't know. Did you ever think out those machinations? I, yeah, I do. Um, first, it would be the delossing <laughs> that would have to happen. Right, that's right. And cleaning up the feces and cleaning up the urine. Cleaning and, up everything. Um, and he's addicted to drugs. He's addicted to drugs. Is he going make it on the plane without
1: the drugs? It would have to be a road trip. I would have to be, you know, one of these people that you hear coming, kidnap someone in the middle of the night. But basically it comes down to I would be arrested because he was
0: on paper an adult. Yeah, I think that's right. I think in this city and this state, that would be a very real risk and a probability. Yeah. I found that working foster care.
1: Oh, tell 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 more about that. We... Ex- We got emergency foster care placements a lot. And these two children came in. One was six and the girl was probably nine. The six year old, the first day or the second day, tried to kill one of my sons. So I called in. I said, Look, we've got a big problem here. This kid's trying to kill my son. Caseworker says, You're just not keeping a good eye on him. I'm thinking, uh, well, you didn't tell me the kid was psychotic. Why don't you come down here and you keep an eye on him? Well, this is what that. Yeah, this is what happened. I worked you with their be, their behavioral specialist, who told me to keep him inside of a hula hoop. To me, that's child abuse. Then he tried to kill another one of my sons, and I called the caseworker again. Oh, what am I supposed to do? Terry called. I have all these cases, but she wants me to take care of this this instance, this thing that she's not taking care of. And I said, let me tell you what. If he was my genetic child, you know as well as I do, you would have every one of my kids taken. But because he's a foster kid, you don't care. He will be on your doorstep before 5 o'clock. He's out of my home.
0: Yeah, the way we have failed foster kids in this city and state is also a crime. It's more than that. Well, it is, because we're talking about children. We're talking about
1: children and Little little kids. What the court wants you to do as a foster parent, this doesn't make sense to me. We want you to make sure... You have continued unsupervised contact with either the birth parents or the birth parents' parents. Now, there's a generational dysfunction happening here. The birth parents didn't end up the way they are on their own most of the time. So when we would have the foster kids interact with the grandparents, things just got worse, and it turned into megadrama. It's so messed up. It's so messed up. Out of all of the foster care workers that I've worked with, there were two that were in it because they had a passion for it.
0: What were the others, what do you think the others were doing in that job that no. didn't have a passion for it? They were waiting to retire and
1: take their purse. That's my opinion. They're so burned out because there's no money going to the foster system. They have more kids. Okay, so here's my thought. Here I am a mom. Why don't we educate parents? Why don't we teach child care in school? Why don't we teach these things? Why don't we stop Why don't we stop arresting moms that have no money and they're stealing food? Instead of putting their kids in foster care, why don't we keep that family together and try and figure out out a situation? But there are never enough funds. And nobody wants to work with anyone. They all, in my opinion, want the credit. So they're unwilling to do a team effort some of this is an ego issue with some of these officials
0: in my opinion very much so you know Shariah Mayfield who ran for Multnomah County chair she came on here and said she was talking a lot about the foster care crisis and and she said she why why can't we bring back orphanages for instance Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of what she was finding and looking into, and this has been my experience as well as a sex abuse abuse lawyer, is that these kids are routinely abused in foster care. They are. When
1: you have to go through a class to be a foster parent, I was appalled, absolutely appalled at the people that would say, I want to be a foster parent because I need extra income. Wow, they would admit to that in the yeah. class.
0: How messed up is that? And they just proceed forward.
1: They let them proceed forward because there's such a shortage. There's a shortage of good foster parents because the people like my family that took these
0: kids well, and tried our best, they're not supported by the system. They don't,
1: No, they're not supported in any way and these kids
0: are not checked on. They are And you can't have kids coming in and terrorizing your family and and attempting to kill your other children. No. And it's you, just not you feasible. Can't. So they end up with all these morons who are stamping checks and abusing them. Exactly, exactly. You know, they're not looking
1: at the root cause. They're not trying to get at... One of the things I really tried to do with our foster kids was get them into good therapy. Sometimes it worked. Most of the time it didn't. Because the time... One of the girls we got was 12 years old, but she had been it was the first time she had been taken from the birth mother but she had been, been had been reported to child protective services about 7 times by family members wow before she was taken and no family member would take her because they were afraid of the mother so she comes to us and almost destroyed our family. It's it's so messed up. There's no there's no rhyme or reason as to that I can see as to why these things are taking place.
0: Michael Schellenberger who's running for governor of California says what we should do is do what they do in places like Portugal that have, I mean, obviously we've decriminalized drugs here in Oregon, but as far as the homeless is concerned, he says that what we should do is get them off the streets, get uh, get these people some triaged services, and apparently they do this in Portugal. So everybody keeps talking about how great it is over in Europe, but in Europe, they don't allow public drug use. There You don't see what you see here with the tents and the public drug dens and the mental illness run amok, um, they triage these people and they don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. They, they're they going. You, mm-hmm. you will go to rehab or you'll go to jail because mm-hmm. you're using drugs publicly or you're selling them. Um, and if you're mentally ill, you're hospitalized. Exactly. Is that, do you think, Find that compelling? Is that something that you would like to see pursued so that these people are cared for and have the help that they need? Yes.
1: You know, the big thing when they closed Damage State Hospital, I realized they closed it because it wasn't, from what I've heard, and this was probably before I moved to Portland, a good place. They had a lot of not so great people, employees in the hospital. There are people out there that want to take care of these people, that have the heart, they have the spirit, they have the want to. They're the volunteers that come out to the potluck. They're the the volunteers that help feed these people. They're the volunteers that go on the, the clothing drives, the sock drives, the blanket drives. Put them in there, let them help. Let people like my son perform. Let these kids do their art, which is their therapy. And if they're seeing someone, in my opinion, I mean, if they're seeing hallucinations, I should say, in my opinion, I'm sorry, you have to take your medication. You have to take your medication. It's safer for all of us. It'll, it'll be given to you intravenously if you decline. Mm-hmm. And I know my son could get very violent. Tranquilize him. Get me back, my son. Do what you have to do to get
0: my son back. What do you say? So my understanding is the ACLU is now inserting themselves into this kind of thing in, in cities that are instituting these programs that we're talking about right now, these involuntary commitment programs. They're insert the ACLU is inserting themselves in this kind of stuff. And and as you said, like the city and the state was telling you, talking about these, these non functional people's rights. Um, and, and my understanding is the way that they distinguish it from dementia is they say, well, dementia's, I mean, this is mind-blowing to me because I think this is the reason to engage in civil involuntary commitment, but they say dementia is not treatable, mental illness and drug abuse is, so the point of treatment needs to be determined by that the non-functional adult being ready. For some kind of intervention. Bullshit, bullshit.
1: I'm sorry. Let me. T- can I tell you a personal story? Yes, please. I don't know if you saw my one uh, the podcast episode that I put out when I ended up in a behavioral unit, and that's what this brings to mind.
0: Um. You ended up in a behavioral unit, did. your son didn't. Exactly. And I had to be
1: interviewed by a social worker, a psychiatrist, a psychiatric nurse, and another social worker. Before I could get out, I had locked myself in the bathroom. I had taken, like, three Ambien so I could sleep, so I couldn't hear my husband yelling at me. They called the Ambulance. And they kept me involuntarily. I called my attorney. I'd never had an experience like that. I called my attorney, Jim, and I said, get me out of here. And he said, Terry, there's nothing I can do. If they put a hold on you, there's nothing I can do. Here I am, a functioning mother of eight kids that is being... Living in a home. Lim- living in a, a b- abusive home to me.
0: And you're being committed.
1: And I'm being But you can't held. get your son held. But I can't get my son held.
0: Yeah, it, it, it makes you wonder why are they holding people like you and not just walking up and down the sidewalk and putting holds on all these people and, and getting them all, all these evaluations? If
1: all of these people out here have rights, where were mine? Where were mine?
0: They have. More rights than you do. They do. The the drug addicted and the mentally ill and the tents. They have more rights than you do. And they're allowed to uh, do what they want unfettered. And we're, we're just all going to pay for it. Right. Exactly. My taxes, even in Clackamas County, I know we're in
1: Multnomah right now. In Clackamas County, my taxes last year went up to a point. Well, I don't met, know if yet, I can metro. afford my
0: house. That's why. Because of the metro homeless. Well, part of it is. Um, the Metro Homeless Tax that was passed. And the issue with the Metro Homelessness Tax is it affects Clackamas, Washington, and Multnomah Counties. And I think everybody's head kind of exploded. You have to be over a certain income to be subject to it, but those people who were, I think everybody's head kind of exploded when they got that bill. Oh, yeah. Because we're all looking around, and all we see is homeless. You know what this makes me think of I don't know if
1: you're old enough to remember the movie Dave, where just the ordinary accountant took over the presidency, yes, and he's yes, like, "Of course, we're getting rid of this and this and this and this." Why can that not happen here? Why cannot people, ordinary people, come in and get these career politicians the heck out of the way because they have an agenda? In my opinion, they have an agenda. That's what it appears.
0: I I agree. But I- but I'm, it, I, this is kind of an intellectual puzzle for me. Why, or maybe I'm overthinking it, what is the agenda and wh- what is the purpose of this?
1: What I've, what I've seen and felt is power over other people. The doctors that I spoke to about getting information about my son and having a psych eval, I could feel and I could see the looks I have the power and you don't. I know better for what's, I know what's better for your son than you do. Um, excuse me, but I've raised my son for 19 years. I
0: know his issues. I know better. Why, it, it boggles my mind because why can't they exercise that bizarre need for power in reverse where they're committing all these people? Mm-hmm. And to the extent somebody objects, they can lord that power over them at that time. I mean, I just why, why bring the agenda in this direction? One thing I've uncovered a little bit on this podcast by having people on like um, Terry P. Rigsby and she ran for Metro Council. and unfortunately, she lost because her opponent, it, who is on Metro Council, takes money from Metro for his nonprofit. And apparently, the city attorney looked into this and said it's completely legal. And I think a lot of what is driving—I—I'm working on getting to the bottom of this and doing a fair amount of research. But I'm—I am wondering. I don't have a lot of evidence to support this yet, but I—I'm sure I can find it. I'm wondering if a lot of this—and—and and like you, like we discussed, there's all these. Unconnected nonprofits floating around getting hundreds of thousands of dollars, allegedly helping the homeless. And I'm just wondering who has a connection, who is in power that has a connection to those nonprofits? Because apparently it's legal to have that connection and to even take your own agency and funnel money into your nonprofit. And you, somebody's got it's a wife it's a sister it's 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 a shell
1: corporation it's something that's allowing them to live in a mansion with the money that is supposed to go to help this man on the street in a tent
0: well and the things that they're doing to quote-unquote help I mean bringing people socks and lasagnas is not going to get them out of the tent no they do band-aid
1: solutions because they don't want to be out of a job it, that's In exactly, my
0: I think. So, I think we're on to something. That's the other thing. If, if these nonprofits really solved homelessness, none of them would exist. Exactly. So, they can't solve homelessness. Instead, they have to do sock drives and hand out lasagnas and do f- food banking and needle exchanges. And they've got to keep this machine running. Exactly. Can you imagine? if all of those people from those nonprofits
1: got together and worked in a facility to help these people, one, they wouldn't be funded the way they are, but if they truly had that passion, these people would be helped beyond measure. There's hope for so many of these people that I see. There are some people out there that do choose to be homeless by, by choice. That's just their choice,
0: right? They want to live a lifestyle fil- th- that's drug fueled, and maybe they're not addicted, but that's just the kind of free floating, "I'll do what I want" lifestyle they want to live, right? They're very few, but there are some.
1: Uh, there are there are a lot of. There's a lot of sex trafficking going on. Yes, there is. Uh, one of the things that there are women coming in and out of these tents. Yes. And one of the things I do not want to think about is what my son had to do to get the drugs he had for all those years. It's like, hello Shanghai Tunnels, is it just as Portland collapsed and we're one big
0: Shanghai tunnel now? As As a mom, to the quote-unquote houseless advocates that would say that institutionalizing your son would take his rights away, what, what would you say to them? Take my
1: son home with you for a week. Take my son home with you for a month. Step into my shoes. Get to know him and see what he needs. Don't assume. This is not something that can be textbook solved. People that have experienced this and know what it's like and have that compassion are the ones that need to be in place, not people that are reading from a textbook that are saying, oh, A, B, C, D, that's what we need to try. That's not going to do anything. They're not in the position to understand why my son was on drugs. They're not in the position to understand why he's afraid of doctors.
0: It blows my mind. I question whether a lot of these people, these quote-unquote houseless advocates who talk about, who, who are against institutionalization and, and use Willamette Week was doing it when they were profiling Renee Gonzalez who is running for city council we, st- we don't know if he'll he's doing some kind of runoff between him and Vadim Mazirski, I think but they did it with him they said well he wants to criminalize homeless the the homeless and what's
1: that gonna do throw them into prison
0: well I think his, Renee's idea was there's got to be a carrot, and it, we, we've mm-hmm. got to have carrots and sticks. So we used to have drug court mm-hmm. before decriminalization. We had drug court, and actually, drug courts metri- and drug court kept metrics. So that was the one area where you could look at, at metrics. And drug court did pretty well. Not the first time. Not the. I mean, the way the data supports when people get clean, right? So if you're on heroin, it takes something like what five to eight times mm-hmm. of inpatient to get clean. So yeah, they weren't getting clean right away. I mean, they'd come back, but the idea was they had a champion in the judge who was who was championing them and encouraging them to not go to jail, to go to rehab. And to the extent they went to rehab and did what they needed to do, they earned all sorts of things. They would earn housing. They would earn they would they they would get triage before they I mean, that was just part and parcel of what they would get in mm-hmm. drug court. They'd get mental health help. They would, um, they would get inpatient rehab and they'd follow them through and if they relapse, they'd go back or they'd go to jail. And that's mm-hmm. kind of Renee's idea. And he was accused of criminalizing okay, homelessness not- because he was using the law as an incentive to get treatment or to or to get mm-hmm. well as an incentive to get treatment. And then for those mentally ill, they he wouldn't Send them, send them to jail, of course, but he, I think his his idea was to enforce the no camping laws that we've decided to get rid of or, or ignore and um, maybe use that as an incentive to get people into hospitals.
1: So I misunderstood you um, when you first brought that up. And I, yeah. that's my own I think it's problem. commonly
0: misunderstood. Well,
1: I try to stay away from the news, except for headlines and things, because I can't take this yelling and screaming at everyone anymore. But do you know anything about James Hawthorne, you know, going over the Hawthorne Bridge? No, tell me more. I did a video for a friend of mine who grew up in this area. James Hawthorne was a leader in mental health that built the first if I'm recalling correctly, mental institution for patients in Portland. They had a playground. It was walled off. He was world-renowned in his treatment, if I'm understanding correctly, of the mentally ill. And he kept them in the Hawthorne Asylum, which is... If you're you're coming over like Hawthorne Bridge in that area on the east side, you can see the front gates of the Hawthorne Asylum. Oh, wow.
0: Oh, is that what that was?
1: Yes. You know where the food courts are? Yeah. That big black Hawthorne Asylum. James Hawthorne was a very strong advocate from what I can tell now for the mentally ill. And his ideas spread throughout the world on how – These people should be treated. They weren't just housed. They weren't just put on a swing set. But they were treated. They were treated as humans. That that doesn't
0: happen anymore. Um, I spoke to someone who was at a debate that City Councilor Joanne Hardesty was at, debating at. And she was asked, what do we do about the service-resistant homeless? And her answer was, none of them are service-resistant. I agree. And her answer was, um, if we offered them services, they will take them. Now, I think Ted Wheeler would argue with that because when he picked up the Laurelhurst camp, he offered them shelter, and I think less 50% or less took him up on it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Some of them, I think, that are
1: resistant, it's not the person, it's the mental illness. It's their disease. That disease needs to be treated involuntarily, in my opinion, if it has to be, to get them to be able to function and say, hey, what the heck was I doing? You know, it brings me back to the movie A Beautiful Mind. And here is this schizophrenic who has an incredible career, but he had to learn to get all of that into control. It can be done. We just don't want to do it. And as far as my son... You know, I know I'm going to have people disagree with me here, there, and and all over the place. My son and police will tell you this too. Arrest him. When I knew my son was in
0: jail, I knew he was much safer than he was on the streets. Most family members say that. I say I said that. I still say that about my sister, and that was that's her only clean time mm-hmm. is in jail. Same with Joshua, and
1: it's like this building over here that's all boarded up that I'm looking at, and. I've never seen it looking like it's falling apart before. Take that. Rehab that building. I don't know if they are or not. It would be perfect. House these people. Take my son involuntarily. I'll help you catch him. I want him well. That's my end goal. I think in some some situations, the means do justify or the end does justify the
0: means. The end of getting these people help and getting them off the streets and and treating them like citizens in a first world country, Mm -hmm. as opposed to a corpse in a tent.
1: Exactly, and that's what Joshua pretty much was the last time I saw him. And it breaks my heart and as I said before, and I stand by it, it is my very strong feeling that Portland and the state of Oregon are responsible for the death of my son and my 10-year journey to
0: get him help. So what you're saying is you, you would agree with Joanne that they're not service resistant, but it's because... Mental illness and drugs have hijacked their brain. Yes. And were they functioning, They, these people would, I mean, of course they would. If they could get out of the fog, they would look around and go, what the hell is, I got to get out of here.
1: What person with half of a stable mindset is going to say no to services to get better? I know there are situations whose people whose parents have beaten them down mentally so far that they feel they are so worthless that they won't accept treatment. Perfect person to build up. Perfect person to take and say, you know what, you are worth something. Here's what you can do. You are capable of more than you think you are. And kids like my son who have the paranoia and the fear, this may, this may sound rogue here, but shoot him with a tranquilizer gun if you have to get him in a hospital get him on meds get him stabilized i have
0: a woman that i met because she called
1: me one night
0: oh my gosh you must get so many calls from other mommies and family members of i do people on the streets telling me their stories
1: of how can you do this, my son, this, my son, my daughter, my mother, my father. Yeah, tell me more about this call. Well, this call, she called me, and she said, you don't know me, Um, are you Joshua's mom? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, I just found him lying in the middle of the street. I picked him up, and I took him to Unity Hospital, where a police officer, they've been
0: told not to touch these people. This citizen- Why is that? Do you know it's too dangerous or what? Or because it it would lead to the appearance of criminalizing homelessness? No, I think it's
1: because of what's happened to our special forces. How much of a police team do we have left? We're spread so thin, they can't answer calls. So she picked him up and she took him to a hospital- OK, so now we get back to when I was taken to the hospital. They're going to keep me for three days for, for a hearing. Luckily, I got out that afternoon, because I could convince them that I wasn't what somebody was saying was happening. Josh was let out. No evaluation. Oh, there was evaluation, excuse me. And it all pointed to exactly what I've been saying. My son is dangerous. My son is about 14 years old. He is psychotic. He has paranoid schizophrenia. He hears things. Oh, but let's let him out on, on, on the streets, and there's a little girl over there. If he sees that little girl and he, in his mind, sees a demon, he's going to kill her. Is that really what we want to do? Or do we want to keep him and treat him? And give him a chance at having a family. You know, I feel Portland didn't just take my son. They took his future. They took my grandchildren. They took me from hearing, hi, Mom. What's for dinner, Mom? I love you, Mom. And why? There is so, There is no one that seems to be working on let's play nice and work together. Everyone wants credit, but no one wants to work together or they don't want to take responsibility if a problem arises. Litigation I think is something that, that comes into this as well. Well, if I do this, you know the Good Samaritan law, you stop and you start to help someone, you can't stop. Am, am I correct on that or am I wrong? I, I actually don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I had always been under the impression that once you start to help a person, you have to stay with them until help arise, uh, arrives, or you can be held liable for their death or any harm that comes to them if you leave before help arrives.
0: That, yeah, if, if, if that's the case, that really disincentivizes people Mm -hmm. from assisting anybody Mm -hmm. because what if what if what if this is some p2p meth addict that starts attacking you or suddenly wakes up and puts their hands around your throat exactly you know it's like the dude that attacked me downtown last summer tell oh my goodness tell us about this well when i was taking joshua Cupcakes for his birthday. Oh, that's right. With the knife. Yes.
1: With the knife. He's coming after us. Yes. And the homeless took him down. A million
0: percent. Yeah.
1: Here's a police officer standing here doing nothing, and the homeless took him down. The police officer could have been fired because he would be infringing on this uh, meth addict's rights, is what my belief is. Or he'd be accused of abuse of power Something would be trumped up. Yeah. So the, hom- the homeless know that they take up a- take it upon or if themselves. something happened
0: and this guy was cut in the process, he'd accuse him of police brutality and it'd be over. It'd be- make the front page of the Oregonian. That guy'd be on trial. Look at split. While the guy that tried to while the guy kit- with the knife would be running around with the knife, back with the knife, yeah, threatening someone else. Exactly. What do you say to people who say, we can't involuntarily hospitalize these people because we know, based on uh, institutionalization pre-Kennedy, pre-Reagan, that these hospitals are, are places of abuse? They were. They were. One of my aunts
1: worked in one. And she was very proud of the fact of some of the things she did. You mean some of the horrible things? Some did. of the
0: horrible things: okay, cattle so prods, she, yeah, she was some kind of sociopath, or something.
1: Yes, she, oh, very definitely. So that's scary. We've learned a lot. We've come a long way since those days. I think education, and you weed out the people like my aunt that are psycho. You weed them out, just like you would if you're hiring in your job. If I'm hiring. In my company, if you're hiring in your company, we have criteria. We have background checks. There are people that need jobs and really have the heart to want to help people. I think it would be much different these days.
0: Well, and it seems to me that you could put some kind of oversight system together and some legislation to ensure enforcement of... Rules and laws against abuse of patients. Exactly, and you can e- criminalize it. You can you can do whatever you want. You can you can allow all sorts of lawsuits. You can mm-hmm. do one on top of the other. You can do both. Mm-hmm. I th- I
1: think I think you're right. I mean, if there is if some if I'm in a situation and I know I'm going to screw something up and I'm going to be sued, or I'm going to be in prison. I'm not going to screw anything or your up. your
0: license is going to be taken away. Exactly. Or, yeah, just really double down on enforcement of all that. Exactly. Because these are our most vulnerable people. They are. And and we're not looking at it through that lens. Mm-hmm. We're not looking at them. We're looking at that. We're victimizing them. Um, and we're, for some reason, we're victimizing them. And it's this weird confluence of victimization and empowerment. It's almost like. We're, it's, we're victimizing them, but we're saying that they have all the power. They have all the power to live where they want, camp where, where they want, poop where they want, vomit where they want, do their drugs, have sex, sex traffic, sell drugs, in, um, live out their trauma, force all of us to, to live out their trauma with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're empowering them to do all that and we're victimizing them in this weird way and saying, well, but don't touch them. Don't institutionalize them. Don't enforce camping laws because they're victims.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Who, my question is exactly who's being empowered?
1: We are inflicting cruel and inhumane treatment on these people. And the ones that resist it are the ones that need it the most. Yes.
0: Yes, because they're the, they're the, Most gorked out, to put it. You know, they are. Colloquially, I mean. With Joshua,
1: one thing opened my eyes. Well, a lot of things opened my eyes with Joshua, but I I was like a lot of people today. The homeless are invisible. Well, they can't be invisible in Portland anymore because it's everywhere. When you are the mother of a child that you know can be helped, and you know the talent, and you have other people telling you what, what a wonderful kid he is, how much potential he had if he could be medicated.
0: That's heart,
1: it's heartbreaking. It's, it's just, it's infuriating. And I look at these people now with completely different, different eyes. I will not give them anything unless it is actual food. You know there's scams everywhere. You know the the people stand up there with with the signs. There are scams there. I'm not saying they all are, but there are scams. You don't know where your money's going. Is it going to buy drugs? Is it going to buy whatever? Um, it's certainly not going to buy food. And I've had situations where I've given food to people, and they throw it back at me. I want money. I I've, want. I've food. had that too.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, they're they're actually just looking around here and knowing what goes on around where we are downtown. Here, they're fed incredibly. The people surrounding this area um, of, in downtown are fed incredibly well. They and, are, and often, yes, they are, and not just by organizations, but also by people that just show up with a, a trunk full of box lunches and start handing them out. I mean, they're they're fed from elephants. Mm-hmm. Places like they're fed very well. They they really are. And I mean, They're well, not malnourished. They well, don't look like they're from South Sudan.
1: Well, in Joshua's, one of the things the medical examiner told me is that he appeared much older than he was, but he did appear, appear well-nourished. I know there are a lot of services available in Portland. The biggest disconnect is... They don't want to share, in my opinion, the accolades of helping someone. How can you be so selfish that you want to, I did it, high five, instead of we did it as a team. We help this person. We help this family. Not I help this family. And that's something that I ran into a lot. Oh, I I can't do that because I'm not going to get anything out of it.
0: People would say that to you. Social workers, they would say that to you. Yes. What, what did they? Oh, some kind of promotion in their job or a check and check the box. Well, one of the things, of their job?
1: Yeah, one of the things that I found is there's certain age categories, and if you're out of that age category and you help this person, you don't get
0: paid. Age categories for the person you're helping or for the social workers? For the person you're helping. Josh. I see. So if I'm in charge of, of kids between 15 and 18, it doesn't behoove me to help an adult. Correct. So they're disincentivized mm-hmm. from helping the broad population. Right. Right. They are. What do you say to people who say, and there are, most of them are saying this. I mean, Tina Kotek is certainly saying this. Um, I've heard Ted Wheeler say it. Dan Ryan certainly says it. Joanne says it. These people who say this is the tents are a housing issue. The reason people are in tents is because the rent is high. That's bullshit.
1: I'll tell them right to their face that's bullshit. They're intense because they can't get the help they need. They're intense because they're like my son who's been red flagged, but yet has qualified for all of these services that no one wanted to work together to give him. It's not a housing issue. It's not a rent issue. Yes, I know rent is high here, but if it was, think about it. Okay, so rent's high on a one-bedroom apartment downtown. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine what that would be. You get six people in there, they're going to split the
0: rent. They're going to be fine. So it's not a rent issue, in my opinion. What, You know, in listening to your life story and hearing your podcast and diving into your YouTube, I couldn't help but wonder, and I wonder if you've ever thought about this, what separates you, who've, who has clearly suffered immense trauma from these people in tents who, who, you know, you you have, you've discussed this, you have ment- a mental illness mm-hmm. um, that you take care of mm-hmm. actively. And you look at all the trauma that you've been through and you could very easily throw out your meds, stop going to the psychiatrist, stop going to the therapist. I mean, that's a lot of hard work mm-hmm. and it's painful. Mm-hmm. You could. It would be much easier for you to shelve all of that and to walk down the street here and grab, grab a bag of fentanyl and sit in a tent and tune out. You know, it's really funny you say that because I was at that point. When, when was that? I was at that
1: point in 2008. I broke. And there was so much trauma when I was growing up. There was so much trauma after being married. And I re traumatized myself. So, with complex post traumatic stress syndrome, um, you can only take so much. And if you're not getting help from people and people are telling you, well, that's really not what you have, you know, it, th- this came about when Obamacare came in and psychiatrists, especially, were shutting doors back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. They didn't know what was going to happen to their, to their practice. So they were going to work for hospitals. So I saw so many doctors, and it came down really to someone that was willing to sit down with me, talk to me, get my full story, and say, this is where we start from.
0: I'm trying to understand. Why were they shutting their doors? At I actually time, didn't know that phenomenon. Yeah, what, what happened,
1: and I only know part of it from the doctors that, I personally was with, they were closing practice because they weren't sure how the ACA was going to affect them in private practice. They would be more protected, they thought, if they were in a hospital setting or in a um, a group setting and not practicing privately. So I lost about
0: six psychiatrists in two years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I can't imagine the mental illness crisis that must have come out of that. I mean, it can not have been just you.
1: No, it was, you know, a lot of people, my psychiatrist and my psychologist now, you know, I was misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder. I didn't have bipolar disorder. I had complex post-traumatic stress. But yet they put me on antipsychotics, these people that didn't take the time to get to know me or what was really going on, that messed me up even more. I was at the point, I flew to Thailand. I wanted out. Did you really? You flew to Thailand?
0: Yeah, I flew to Thailand and promptly got abducted. Oh, <laughs> my. Well, we've got to dive down this. Oh, gosh. I
1: was not making good choices because I was, here I am being, raising a kid's, my parents just died. My grandson died. My my son was hit by a hit-and-run driver that left him on the side of the road. That was the whole thing in a trial. Two grandbabies born three months early. And I think the catalyst for my break was my parents dying. Because at that point, I knew I wasn't going to disappoint them, and I could break. And I truly, without that break, I don't think I could have come back to who I am today, but I did. I was offered a job. I had a I was starting a TV series here in Portland, and the man ended up embezzling a lot of money from me. And at that point, I just I wasn't thinking clearly. I was on the wrong medications that were just making everything like a fog, like swimming through jello. And then I got this opportunity that looked good. I had it checked out by one of my investigators. He said, This guy has nothing on him. It looks legit. Go for it. I talked to my kids. I talked to everything, to everyone. And my son, one of my sons said, Mom, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Go for it. So I got off the airplane. I don't remember the next four days except for people. I remember flashes of people being around me and giving me water. And when I finally woke up, I didn't know what day it was. I felt really dirty. Half my money was gone. And I started to piece together what was happening. Thankfully, I have resources here in the States that I called that were able to put a tail on me. This, is, this was when uh, Bangkok was imploding, it was the end of 2013. And my friend said, I've got someone there. She's watching you. I want you to stay with these people. These people were native Thai. They have a restaurant there, a bar. They kept tabs on me. And he said, you're going to see a woman, but just pay her no mind. So I had this woman following me. The American embassy could not get me out for two weeks because Americans were fleeing. I had to beg, scratch, and do whatever I could to get out. But she was tailing me to keep me safe. And it scares me to death. What if they had kept drugging me? What happened? I came home with a whole lot of things that I didn't go there with. D- did
0: you, do you have a memory of consuming something? Water. It was just the water.
1: All I remember is take this
0: and water. And and I have... I mean, initially, do you have any... What Like when you got off the plane? When I got have- off
1: the plane, I remember taking the bus into this little city called Onang. And I don't remember anything for several days after
0: that. Except for people. A lot of people around. Did you have injuries or anything? Like, do you think you were, how do you, what do you think happened? Do you think you were knocked out? I was drugged. How, how, uh, sir, how did they drug you? Syringe? Um, GHB. A lot of GHB. They got it into some kind of drink? or Water. Like, it's what, water that's all I can. when you weren't looking or yeah, something? Yeah, that's all
1: I can remember. Well, I was so tired after the trip, and then when I got back, so when I got your to the- So water bottle
0: was open, and- Oh, yeah, yeah you fell asleep or something
1: so thankfully my friend was able to get me out of there and keep me safe while I was there and I was I had enough about me at that point to realize oh you've made a big mistake and then when we had this this guy this producer checked out he had no record in America because he wasn't an American he was a Canadian that is banned from Canada If he steps foot in Canada, he will be arrested. (laughs) Mike Terry, how horrible does it have to get before you say, we got to straighten something up here. We've got to look at the core issue and what's going on, which is sort of how I came up with the podcast is the complex trauma and explaining I really wanted people to know my story and who I am because I think I can relate to people and make
0: them feel I'm not alone. Yeah, I think you, you're helping a lot of, I know you're helping a lot of people because they're reaching out to you. They are. And what amazes me
1: is I had a blog in 2008 for several years. I saw that. It's still Did up. You see, is it up? Yeah. And people still, still email me from that. Oh, wow. How do I do this? I need to help my brother. I need to help my sister. What advice do you give them? You know, I tell them what I've learned. Don't give money. Don't give items. Go to the police. Make sure you know the police, the hospitals, get ROIs. Try and get a power of attorney. ROIs are Uh, release of information. I'm sorry. Release of information. Make sure you are known in the community. Meet the homeless. Yeah, it's hella scary. But you know what? As soon as those people see, most of them see you're sincere and you just want your son to know you love him, they are the most helpful people you will ever meet. Because they wish their mother was down looking for them. So I just told them what I did. Have you heard any success stories? I have. Oh my gosh. Actually, I have on my personal Facebook page, I have probably eight people on my page that Joshua himself got off the streets. Oh, my goodness. How did he do that? He told them this is no place for you to be. You can do better. You need to get off.
0: Wow. He saved people. He
1: did. They have – they're entrepreneurs now. They have their own businesses. Oh, my goodness. My son – who couldn't do it for himself, helped other people. What a legacy. You know, I'm just so proud of him. And the people from high school that I know that knew Joshua that would protect him, they said Joshua would give anyone anything that he had. All he wanted to do was make sure people were smiling and got the best they could get. And this was, of course, before mental illness set in. But to know and to see these people that are thriving, because Joshua convinced them to get off the streets, is just such a blessing.
0: They reach out to me. It would be a comfort. It
1: would be a comfort. It is a comfort. It, it, It makes me feel like there was a plan. Like his life was not wasted because that that's a big thing i think with a lot of people with mental illness and their parents or their families thinking oh this this life is wasted why should i even go down and look for him they don't matter i was shocked at how many people told me we have not seen parents look for their children
0: why do you think that why do you think that is it, are they too scared to I think come it, downtown? Well, I think in, in my
1: instance, Joshua was adopted. In other situations, they may not be adopted, and those parents
0: may have the same issues the child has. And it's like... Yeah, the parents aren't functional. Right. I, I'm sure that's a lot of it. I'm sure yeah. that's a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And here we have CPS here
1: in, in Oregon making you, if you're a foster parent, have um,
0: contact with these non-functional people. Well, and you know all these poor foster kids that are mistreated and not assisted end up in these tents and the cycle starts all over again.
1: They do, it's, it's a generational thing that is just not broken. And that, I think, is one of the saddest things to me. It's one of the things that I'm learning about myself. I think in the last three years, I've made huge strides in realizing why I react the way I react to certain situations, why I was so protective of my kids, because no one protected me, why why I was overreactive in situations, and now the pieces are falling Together, and I'm you know, I'm looking and I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I'm 60 years old now. Why am I just learning this? Why am I just learning this? I couldn't fathom it before. Plus, being in a situation that I'm in in my home, I wasn't allowed to look at certain things, I was kept distracted because. I don't want you working outside of the home. I don't want you wearing that outfit. I don't want you doing this. I don't want you doing this.
0: Captive. I was captive. So you have this breaking point. You go to Thailand. Fortunately, you get out alive. And how do you move on without just letting everything go to Hell and escaping into a tent with some fentanyl. I had to let it go to hell. I had some of my parents' um,
1: inheritance money left that had not been taken. I used that. I, I went through a very bad patch. I was never homeless. I never did drugs. I'm not a drinker. I've seen that, and I stay away from it. I'll have a drink, you know, here and there. But... That kind of carried me through, and I was still in the phase of believing I wasn't worth people of the caliber I knew
0: I should be with. What did you spend the money on? Uh, Necessities, rent, food. Because you weren't able to work, and so thank God you had it. Yes, yes. And my ex-husband
1: stopped paying uh, spouse support. Promptly went to jail. <laughs> um, yeah, you needed
0: that to I survive. Needed,
1: I needed it. It wasn't much, but I needed it to survive. And actually, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because with that, I realized, hey, I've taken my care of myself for three years. That's something I was told by my parents I could never do. Look what I've done. And it's just been uphill from there. There were a lot of buried memories that had to come out. Those are coming out. I wouldn't even broach my childhood because I did not want to tarnish the memories of my parents. I came to the realization my parents have traumas of their own. They didn't set out to put me on a particular path. That's kind of why I chose that name, Digging Through Dominoes, as my podcast, because I kind of see dominoes, you know, you set them up, topple them. Most of the times they go on a straight path. Sometimes they go on a different path. I feel like I went on a different path because of things that happened, situational things in my life growing up, and I ended up in a place I really shouldn't have been. My life would have been completely different had my childhood
0: been different. Um, and this started, it sounds like this trauma in childhood started in infancy. In even. infancy. From what my aunts are telling
1: me, you know, I can't remember my infancy, but from what my what aunts are, they are telling, telling you? me. Your mother never wanted you. Your mother was contemptuous. She was very jealous of the attention you were getting from our mother, their mother. I just posted an episode last night that was talking about the origins of, of complex trauma. And I, I kind of try to interweave some of my own stories into that. And I remember my mother, when I, I was probably three years old, telling me she would lock us outside, or lock me outside. My brothers hadn't come along at the time. She would lock me outside, and I was knocking on the door to come in. And she told me she was going to put me in the alley in the trash can. And I told her at one point, I'll just tell them to bring me in. And she just looked at me, they don't speak English. And I'm like, well, I learned pretty quickly you don't talk to your parents. But I had enough of a connection with my grandmother, my aunts, and my uncles that I, I was able to connect on a level. And I think that's really what got me
0: through. And probably enabled you to see that what was going on with mom was not normal.
1: Right. Right. It, you know, and I've come, I love my mother and I know now the traumas that she went through. What did she go through? Well, she was born in, let's see, 40, 41. And her parents got divorced when she was fairly young. So she raised her younger sisters. And that was rare back then. Very rare. And the same thing happened to my dad. But my dad's mother gave away all of his brothers and sisters. She kept him. To who? Relatives? or Relatives or whoever would take him. Oh, my goodness. She kept my dad as a pawn because she in New Orleans at the time, if I am remembering correctly the story that my father told me, in New Orleans at the time, if you were Catholic, boarding school was free. And she got free services if she had a child, so she kept my dad. Everyone else was gone. So neither of my parents had physical touch. My grandmother said she would leave my dad in a playpen and go to work. Neighbor would come up every four hours and change him and feed him. Oh, my God. Dad was an alcoholic. Every four every hours. Every four hours. I mean, any
0: mom knows that it's you know, he must have been covered in his own feces. He was. He was. Starving. And
1: I'm sure he was just screaming his head off. You know, and it, it made sense as it got older as why my dad wouldn't let me hug him. It was until, not until my mother was killed that he said I never knew the importance of touch. Your mother was killed. She was killed, yeah. It was physician negligence, and it was horrifying. And then dad died. They had just broken ground on his... What happened with the... What was the negligence? Well, she she fell and went to get stitches. So when she get to, went to, got to the hospital to get stitches... The attending doctor sent her back to get scans. The tech, the scan tech guy, I don't know what to call him, um, kept calling back and saying she can't breathe, she can't breathe, she can't breathe. The doctor kept insisting that the scans be finished and she not be brought back to the ED until the scans were finished. Finally, the tech brought her back to the ED. By that time, she was in DIC, and she couldn't be intubated. Oh, my God. It was horrifying. Horrifying. How old
0: were you at this time?
1: I was 42.
0: Wow. I was 42. And you had your own kids. I had
1: my own kids. I flew back, took care of my dad for 13 months. Yeah. And then he died 13 months after my mother died. And what was that cause? When I first got there, since I was a builder, he said, you and I are going to finish your dad's house. I mean, your mother's house. Right. You You have a contracting company. Yes. Um, Excuse me. You know exactly what your mother wants. I want you to do it. So that's what we did. And he said, I want you to know, when we're done, I'm going to go. So I started getting really nervous when and you he, knew he meant go as in die yeah he said that's all I want to be I want to be next to my your wife my my wife your mother so it was 447 days later
0: that must have been heartbreaking to hear it was it was as his daughter yeah it was
1: heartbreaking but it was very healing because I had never really had a relationship with my dad that my mother's death gave me my dad my dad wanted me he didn't want my brothers who wanted me and after everything I had gone through with my dad, my dad wanted me with him, it was really healing for me. And we had a wonderful time, and I could see that his alcoholism was getting worse. I could see that his COPD was getting worse. Um, I knew logically the house had been finished, the gates were up, That he would be going and luckily my brothers and I were with him for 10 days about two weeks before he died and my brother called me one day and he said I can't get a hold of dad I think I think something's happened I've been trying to call him all day and then I called my little brother and and asked him to go to check on my dad. He didn't call me back, he didn't call me back, and he didn't call me back, and finally I called. He said, oh, my God, it's the same thing that happened with Mom. My dad had... It wasn't the same thing that happened with my mother. My my dad had died, actually, while he was taking his shoes off, and he had fallen forward and hit his head on um, a, like piece. a a freak accident thing. Yeah. But he had had a heart attack or, or something. He had died.
0: And so do you think he knew that his body was imminently shutting down? Oh, yes. Because I thought you were gonna say he killed himself. No, but he knew he was not doing well, he knew. Um, he knew he
1: was expiring. He wanted to, he was actively dying. He wanted to be next to my mother. My mother was the only person in his life that had been there for him all the time. It's so heartbreaking, it's really sad. It's sad, but, you know, I'm glad I had the time with my dad. I'm glad I had a restored relationship with my mother. Um, And in my mind, things happen for a reason. I can't take on bitterness or negativity or anger in something that I had no control of or I have no... Insight into other than my dad wanted to be with my mom
0: How what advice can you give to people as far as when you talk about channeling anger because as You speak I'm thinking you have so many reasons to be angry very angry Mm -hmm. at The government at your parents at your son frankly Mm -hmm. What do you do to make sure it doesn't consume you that's something I had to learn because I
1: found out I was very angry. I had to go through a process with my therapist of realizing I was in a narcissistic, abusive relationship for 30-something years and become nonreactive. I also looked at my life and saw everything that was bringing negativity into my life and anger into my life, and I made very strict boundaries and if in, in what way what did
0: you do exactly
1: people that were not good influences that would i would regularly hang out with and they had this like real negative vibe i just didn't want that anymore i had to get to the point where i said no this isn't for me this is not the way i want to live my life
0: i think a lot of people have trouble cutting out relationships mm-hmm. and creating those boundaries what 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 exactly did you do to get those people out of your life without feeling guilty, without feeling like you were saying the wrong thing or I'm gonna hurt their feelings, so I'm just gonna leave this person in my life. What what was it that you did?
1: I listened to my therapist that I needed to do what was best for me. What was best for me was best for me. I didn't need to worry about these people. I blocked family. I blocked
0: friends. And that's hard for people too, because I hear a lot of people say, Well, my mother or whoever is abusive but or or committed some heinous crime and I can't I, I don't want to sit in the same room with this person, but they're my family and I really you know, I'm obligated to do this. You're obligated
1: to take care of yourself. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anything. And it's like with some of the relationships that I've had to block, it's not a forever block. If you get your stuff together and you show me you've gotten it together, that's fine. I've also chosen the way I react. A lot of people will ask me, why aren't you mad at God? I'm a, I'm a Christian. Why aren't you mad at God? Because he killed your grandson when he was 12 weeks old. What happened there? He got herpes encephalitis from my daughter who didn't know she had it. Oh yes. Yeah. And is he, that
0: is that why they do the drops in the eyes and stuff when that, the baby comes out?
1: No, that that's something different. I can't remember what they usually if they know the mother has herpes, they'll do a C section or they will treat them for the last trimester with an antiviral. But by the time we didn't know that, the birth father didn't say anything about it that he had it. And my, my daughter's presentation is not the normal presentation. So we didn't know she had herpes. She continually tested negative. The baby was born. I knew there was a problem. Oh my god. By the time we get him to the hospital, it was too late. Um, you know, there's a there's kind of a fine line there. You can't force your your daughter to do this, but you're like, "Hey, you need to get him to the hospital. There's a problem." And you know, Isaiah was here for a reason. People will say, Why aren't you angry with God? I said, you know, the way I look at it is, excuse me, the way I look at it, the way I choose to look at it, it's all it's all a choice. Everything we do is a choice. The way I choose to look at it is there is a tapestry. And we are looking at it from beneath, and we see the dark threads, the knots the tangles, but when we see it from above, we're going to see where those dark threads and knots were integral in this masterpiece that was created. So I think it just, for me, comes down to a choice and not allowing it in as much as possible.
0: I think that's I mean I'm inspired by that. I think that's really beautiful. How did you How did you come up with that? I love it.
1: Well, I don't know. I just I just knew by watching people. I didn't want to be like them. I didn't want to be like my mother. Um She was 65 when she died, not going for her dreams, being angry, staying home crocheting and making banana bread. I wanted to be surfing, riding my Harley and enjoying my life. And it was just brick by brick. Yeah, there's some slip ups. I I can get pretty angry with some people, but I try to reframe that and see it from another perspective. Because it's for my own it's for my own good. If I carry around bitterness and anger, the only one that's gonna be
0: destroyed is me. Do you think Portland's gonna come back? No. Say more. Same same say more on that. Every time I come down here, it's been what two
1: years, a little over two years now. When I came here today. Like since the riots? Since the riots that weren't stopped. Um, I come down here today, I see empty buildings. I see garbage. I see broken glass. I don't, it may come back. I mean, if you look at Detroit, it never came back. It's not a place to be. Portland used to be vibrant and beautiful and loving. The people were loving. I think the last two years of divisiveness has really played into the way. I mean, if I take a walk and say hi to someone, they don't speak back. People tend to avoid each other. Right now what I see, we have some projects actually going on in this area down here. They're not really aimed at anything but someone making money. And they're not aimed at beauty. They're not aimed at what Portland was. The Portland that I fell in love with and that you probably loved. That was fun. It was festive. It was beautiful summer nights. You know, live music, safety. It was safe. I mean, it was safe. It was very, very safe very safe. I don't come downtown and not be armed.
0: I when did that when did you start carrying when you came downtown? I would say when
1: I started um, really having to go to, through the boroughs with Joshua and but then at the same time, a lot of the homeless knew me, and they would say, do not cross that line. Do not go past that yellow building. So I, I felt a lot more comfortable that when they knew me, and they were telling me, you don't go there. No matter what you have, you are no match for what's on the other side of that line. That's ominous.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, they see so much. And, and that just compounds their trauma. What I
1: find yes.
0: c- totally disturbing is that we know that right now there are horrific things going on in all those tents that is compounding the trauma these people are already experiencing. It is. It really is, and if you think about it,
1: another way to look at some of this, aside from the trauma that's going on, is what are these people numbing from? What happened to them that is so horrific that made them have to numb? And I think that goes back to your question, how I'm different from how they are. I've been working on this for 60 years and 30 years ago i went through an adult children of alcohol an adult children of alcoholics class that helped me a lot and i think that helped me i think my personality my tenacity but i see people that have been so beaten down and they have buried more memories than i could ever dig up and they have no, they just have no hope you know they have no hope and that only re-traumatizes them. And then what do they have to do to get the drugs? They don't have money. You're not going to get drugs for free. That's more trauma. Then you have people spitting on you. You have people calling you trash. That's more
0: trauma. Hurting you. Yeah. Murdering you. Assaulting yes. you. Mm-hmm. Homeless and not. Hitting you with their mm-hmm. cars. Exactly. And you you have with their bikes. Exactly. Oh, selling you drugs, cartels coming in, taking advantage of you. Yes. As a customer. Yes.
1: And you're going to pay one way or another. You're going to pay. It's, I'd like to say that this is a situation that we can take care of. But in reality, my reality, what I see, it's too far gone. There are beautiful buildings down here. There are beautiful homes down here. But so much of the city, in my opinion, just needs to be bulldozed. When you're looking at empty empty. You know, you look out your windows and I know, you see I know, empty everything.
0: <laughs> Looking out these these windows downtown, it's it's apocalyptic for people who yes. can't see what we're seeing. I mean, it's 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 boarded up building. It's 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 detritus, it- really. It's plywood. It's graffiti. It's tents. It's encampments. It's bodies. It's filth,
1: mm-hmm. garbage,
0: glass. And
1: one thing that you have to think of too. The people that do live in the inner city here, and I was, one of the books that I'm reading is a book by Pete Walker called Complex, uh, Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving. One of the things he speaks about is children that live in a war zone. These children here are in a war zone. The gun violence, and I am very pro. In my view, who with a gun is gonna come up to someone that is armed? Nobody. I don't know. You know, what is the answer? What is the answer? Um, right now, when I, when I see Portland or think of Portland, I, I'm just hopeless. I can't even hardly come down here anymore. I used to love to come to the Waterfront Jazz Festival. All Portland really was wonderful. But how can we make it back if we can't even help the homeless and we're shuffling them from city to city, from county to county, and we're not helping them?
0: Or shuffling the, their tents around. Yeah. What... What do you think of Dan Ryan's idea to create these safe, he wants to create these safe rest shelters. Um, The mayor and Sam Adams have said they want homeless out of downtown so people will come back and start spending money. And Dan Ryan's creating these safe rest shelters, putting them in neighborhoods, and Bringing the services to the site, like
1: low barrier housing.
0: Yes, I called low the, to no barrier. And, yes. and, he, and he he concedes that he's putting these people in neighborhoods without screening for felonies, and he mm-hmm. refuses to commit to do that, let alone sex offenses.
1: I called Lars Larson on that.
0: Oh, you did. Yeah,
1: and this was when Joshua was alive. Oh, and wow. I just happened to catch, catch him on the air, and I said, I'm going to call in. They took my call, and I said, as the mother of a homeless, mentally ill son, this is the worst idea you could ever do. You don't know what these people are capable of, capable of. capable of. They're not getting the services they need now. What are we going to do? We're going to build this encampment, this house – And it's going to be stuffed with, what, 40, 50, 60 drug addicts? It's not. You have to go to the root problem. And nobody wants to do it. They think it's some utopia. We'll just build a house and everything's going to be okay, all rainbows and, you know, unicorns.
0: No. I think Dan Ryan would say, well, they'll have services. We're bringing services to the safe rest sites.
1: The people won't go in there.
0: You have. There's no incentive.
1: There is no incentive, and. You know as well as I do, there are parts of Portland police will not enter. I actually don't know that. There are parts that police will not enter. where Where do they not go? One of the biggest places is Old Town, Chinatown. They won't go there. Very few will go there, especially now that our rapid response team is gone and they're so spread out. Under the Burnside Bridge, if someone's murdered there, oh
0: well. They'll find them one day. How do you know? From the homeless. Oh, okay. So they know that they know are places where they can where co- the police don't go.
1: They know where they can commit crime. They know if they throw a rock through a window and bash out Tiffany's windows, say, and take everything that they can get, police are not going to come to that call.
0: Well, that's true. And they probably won't be prosecuted. No. No. They'll probably be deemed a victim and mm-hmm. released. Yeah. You know, it, it. it's just...
1: The protest, I don't understand. If you want to protest something, let's do this in a rational way where people will have sympathy for you. But if you're going to protest by burning down and destroying towns
0: and businesses, who is gonna have sympathy for you? No one. So I had a guest on who is now part of the, it's called the FIT team, which is the new gun violence Mm. response team. And he was adamant that, he didn't participate in any of this, but he was adamant that we needed the riots to bring attention to police abuse of black people and that without the riots, we never would have had that. How many riots
1: have happened on -on black-on-black crime or black-on-white crime? It's not addressed. It's not addressed. Crime is crime. I think we're being spoon-fed a narrative that people are too eager to believe. A person is a person, we're being divided. I have never seen this country so polarized. My children, I don't know if you've seen pictures of my children. My children are of all races. When I look at my children, I see my children. I don't see a black kid. I don't see a biracial kid. I don't see an
0: Italian kid, I see my kids. And I think the narrative now, if your average Portlander, which I'm certainly not, but if your average Portlander were sitting across from you, they would say, oh, you're one of those white ladies that doesn't see color. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me you're one of those people who doesn't see, who doesn't see color. And they would say that, that that's the most important thing, that you've got to see color or else you're not really seeing that person. I think that's an injustice and I think that's a form of
1: racism. I think you need to talk about and think about the experiences they've had. I think the experiences people have had define them more than color does. My kids have never, my black kids, my mixed kids, they have never experienced racism. I asked them about a week ago, have you ever, And they've lived in Portland all their life, and they said, never, except by white Portlanders. Tell me about that. My daughter, one of her favorite shirts to wear, well, she has two that she likes. One of them is, I'm Your Worst Nightmare, and on the back it says, a black Republican. (laughs) And then she has one that says, it has a little chick on it, a little chicken, And it says something like, chick on the right. People see that, they attack her. They throw things at her. White people. When she comes downtown. Uh Uh-huh. They will throw things at her. They will call her names. What kind of names? They will say that she is a sellout. She's playing into the man's narrative how can she be so brainwashed? thankfully my kids when i i homeschool my kids because i wanted them to learn unwritten history. i mean not unwritten, unrewritten history. if you rewrite history, how are you going to learn what happened? if you're tearing down all these statues, how are you going to learn what they meant, good or bad? When we went back to see my, or meet my my son's birth sisters, one of the girls was telling me that they were going to take down the statue of Christopher Columbus and replace it with Harriet Tubman. Right. Yeah, I read about that. And I'm like, uh, I didn't say anything. You know, it wasn't the appropriate time to say anything. And But I'm thinking, okay, we're going to take it. Instead of using this as the learning experience, why don't we just erect another statue of Harriet Tubman instead of taking away a part of history that we need to learn something from? We can't just pick the history we like
0: because what's gonna be repeated? I guess they would say Well, you know, Germany took down all the statues. I mean, would you leave up a statue of Hitler? I guess they'd ask questions like that.
1: Personally, I would leave one up in a cage. (laughs) I would cage it. I would make sure people knew who Hitler was and what he did. But I really don't think it's fair. I mean, with with Christopher Columbus and Adolf Hitler, I think... I
0: mean, I agree with you. There's no comparison, but you know they'd make that comparison. They would. They would. Immediately.
1: Immediately. And I also realize I, <laughs> there are certain people of all sides that you can make an argument with. Not that you're arguing or you're being negative. You're just trying to explain your point of view. Their comeback is something completely off topic to throw you off. They will not answer your question. They will not interact with you on the subject of should we have Christopher Columbus and a separate Harriet Tubman? Can't we teach both? Don't we need both? Don't we need to know why the indigenous people were destroyed well, or why we call them Indians, right? Right, I mean- right. I mean, and it, it gets, even to me, that gets to me, I'm a Native American, I'm an ind- indigenous person. My people came over here in like the 1300s, 1400s. So that's that's really offensive to me. Um, it Drop, it's, it's easy for me to say, because I know that I've, I was brought up much differently than a lot of these people were. A lot of people that I've seen have been ingrained for generations. I was taught, my dad had a very high position of very influential clients. We met them. We knew which ones he loved, which ones he hated, and why. We also knew the janitors, the guys that kept the the hangars clean. We knew the guys that painted the airplanes, we knew the people that fueled the airplanes. We knew everyone. My dad grew up in downtown New Orleans. He was born in 1938. His first job was... Ten years old, is an oyster shucker. He had the best education on character and people that you could have. And that's one wonderful thing my dad passed on to us. And my son's birth aunt was the assistant director to the National Institute of Health. And she is in her 70s, and she came to me. And uh, my son, his birth dad was very, very dark. She came to me and she said, Terry, I keep seeing all this division and all this racism. What have you experienced? What have the kids experienced? I said, what we experience is that we're white. That's it. My kids have never experienced anything from being black. They have from being on conservative, I guess I should say moderate. Think. For wrong
0: think. Yeah. For not checking the box that Portlanders want them to check politically. Yes.
1: That's one thing about Portland that I've said for so long. Portland is tolerant and giving and compassionate and wonderful as long as you believe exactly what they believe. If you don't, You're Satan himself. You know, and I have have these discussions at home with my husband, who is, he's much older than I am. And I'm just so angry, you know, especially with, like, LGBTQ things, all those people, those people. I said, you just stop those people. My grandson is gay. I don't want to hear that. He's my grandson. You think I'm going to ditch him? Do you think I'm going to ditch my best friend? No. So, so some of the, some of it I think is generational. Some of it I think is spoon fed. Some of it I think is. Do you see. feel
0: characterized by oh, the people in fa- Portland? Oh, very much so. Very much so. As as a transphobe, as a homophobe, as a racist, as a. Um, I mean, does your daughter feel that way? She must, as a traitor, as a... My daughter feels very
1: betrayed by the black community in Portland. Um, I feel that people are entitled to their beliefs. But get to know me before you label me. Because my appearance does not speak to what I feel. My my appearance and my evolution over the years, especially watching with you know with Joshua and the people that have helped me, um I have a totally different worldview than I did when I was younger. Although I can say this polarization that's happening is so disturbing. You know, you see see pictures of little kids, black, white, all colors, Hispanic, holding hands. Hate is taught. It's not inborn. It's taught. And I just how sad it must be to live a life that you have to continually fill it with some sort of hatred to me it's a form of bondage
0: where do you think this this comes from do you think these the people in portland that say harass your daughter or are caricaturing people who think differently from them are they lacking meaning in their life is this is this their religion is it just is it just as simple as indoctrination? Is it is it mob? Is it kind of mob think, like go along to get along? And this is how I have to think too. And so I'll just adopt those thoughts? In one
1: aspect, I think it's mass psychosis. In another aspect, I think that it is we're just gonna go along with the flow. I hear so many things from people that they say are historical facts that are far from accurate. But yet, they don't want to look at the books. They don't want to read. They don't want to do the research. I think we have a culture of people that would rather listen than research. Listen than learn parrot, then come up with an original thought. That's that's such a complex answer. I think there's so many tributaries to that river,
0: this river that we're in now. It makes you wonder if some of the homelessness stuff doesn't come from that, too, because obviously none of their narrative is working. I mean, we look around, there's tents all over the place, so this Housing First, they have rights garbage, is not producing any kind of metrics whatsoever. If if it was true, my son would be alive.
1: If that theory was indeed true, my son would be sitting across the table. I think it's a very sad commentary today that you don't know who to believe. You can watch the news. It could be a very accredited news source. You don't know if it's true. You don't know if it's not. We don't have journalists anymore. We have op-ed.
0: That's what the news has become. Yeah, everybody is expected, I think. Every time we read an article, we're expected to look for the point of view. We know there's a point of view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're not just reporting facts anymore. There's an insertion of a point of view. You know, I remember when
1: I was a kid watching the news. On both sides. On both sides. And yes, on both sides for sure. But when I was a kid watching the news, we never knew what political affiliation or ideals these people held they reported what was going on. Now we get no news. We get a biased reporting. And you don't know which narrative is more correct or if you need to throw them all out
0: and not believe any. Well, and as you said, we didn't, we didn't even know who these, we knew their faces and their voices, but we didn't know them personally. Now we also get a litany of throat clearing um, which seems mandatory about their white privilege or the fact as a, as a lesbian, as a, these identity categories, or they'll apologize for their lack of identity categories. That drives me out of my flippin' mind. These people going on
1: these apology tours? No, why do you have to apologize for what you believe in? Be a good human. If you're being a good human, you're going to bow down. I think that only empowers some of the uh, all-around race baiting, the, all of the division. If you're going to bow down and let them tell you you can't think a certain way, whether it be good or not, you're giving in. You're, you're part of the problem. And I don't, <laughs> I mean, even bringing this up is, is just kind of strange. One of Kid Rock's, I saw an interview, and they said, you're uncanceled. You cannot be canceled. Why do you say that? And he said, because I don't care. People can think what they want to think you're not going to bother me, and I'm not going to apologize because your feelings got hurt. People's feelings are hurt every day. You know what? They grow up and they deal with it.
0: Yeah, it it is interesting that we're raising these generations of kids who seemingly are unable to function in society in almost any way. And in fact, it, it seems like we're... Great training adults to do the same. I mean, when the city of Portland gave its employees bereavement leave when George Floyd was murdered. Mm -hmm. To to, you know, sort of like, let's take this on personally Mm -hmm. and grieve a stranger that didn't die here. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: All these events that happen in, in Minneapolis and 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 let's just take that on and graft that onto ourselves and and, it, and we can't work we're unable we are so upset by it we're unable to go of the, the death of the stranger that yes was horrible that was murdered at the hands of police due to police brutality which is horrific and and but you know the idea that the city of portland employees would need bereavement leave because they would be so affected by this that they would be unable to work, strikes me as strange at best. It's insanity. <laughs> it's complete insanity. <laughs> you know, th- they're doing this in law schools. Uh, yeah. Part of what I think is interesting is, um, and I've been practicing for a long time. Uh, from day one, not uh, certainly in practice, but even in law school, from and I know they're really different now. It, I felt like law school really prepared me for practice because um, frankly, all the uh, abuse and and vitriol and and maybe a fair amount of criticism that's gonna hurt your feelings or that you don't like about your work product, about your thoughts, about whether you have the intellectual capacity to pursue this, Mm -hmm. um, questioning your ability to practice, questioning your competence. Um, constantly being second-guessed. And I felt like that was good preparation for practice where I got that from opposing counsel and judges and clients. And my um, many of my clients did horrible, horrible things, and I was um, representing them. Or I was working at the DA's office, and I would um, be sit across from people who had done horrible things and their attorneys who were appointed to represent them Mm -hmm. and they were expected to do their jobs. They weren't, these people were not expected to get up during the middle of court and, and get leave from court to go in the bathroom and cry or take a week off because they heard something they didn't like or that hurt their feelings or that upset them or because a judge yelled at them. Um, You know, I'm hearing about these like trigger warnings on exams that deal with uh, um, nasty racial epithets hurled at people in hypothetical employment situations that they want these future lawyers to work through. Why? Because those are routinely presented to you. Right, right. Because this is your job. Your job is to deal with all these people and and figure out a way to get all this resolved in, in or out of court and those are your real life fact patterns. And these students are allowed to say that they felt triggered by it and go into some kind of safe room or just get those all of those hypotheticals removed from the exam. And I don't think they understand that once they get into practice, they're gonna be dealing with these people constantly. Right. I and bet. that's their job. And I bet all of those kids got
1: trophies whether they won or not. You know, we've got the trophy generation. You don't have to be good at anything. It's okay if you get your feelings hurt because we're gonna make it all better. I told someone the other day, I just want to take a bag of pacifiers and hold, keep around with me, here you go. I don't want to hear it. I don't care, black, white, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, Stop whining, because that's not the solution. Work on the solution.
0: Well, and everything, believe it or not, I mean, I think the other thing is, they seem to think that literally every ill in society is rooted in white supremacy. They they can reduce everything to white supremacy.
1: Yeah. In Mm -hmm. Portland. Uh, That's ludicrous. That's ludicrous. I mean... To lump me as a white woman. As in, an indigenous woman. In a, into a, an indigenous white woman. Into supremacy, white supremacy. I shouldn't have to feel the need to pull out my great-grandfather's refusal to join the Klan letter.
0: To say, see, I'm okay, I can be accepted for your bona fides. You know, I think they'd also be upset by the fact that you you say things like "A, a white woman. I think they'd be upset, and I think they would try to correct you and say, be confused that you're not identifying as an indigenous woman. And be upset by it. You know, I was born here in this country.
1: The last time... I knew um, I'm indigenous. This is where I'm from. I'm not, I get furious when people call me a Caucasian European. I've never been to Europe. I'm a Texan, if anything. (laughs) Is that where
0: you're from, Texas?
1: Yeah, I was born in Texas. I mean, that's where you get get a gun with your birth certificate. How did
0: you end up in Portland? Uh, Work.
1: Work. We were going to move to Florida and got a lead that there was a lot of work in Seattle. And so we moved to the Seattle area. And this is one of the coolest things. My son, Michael, he's, he turned 31 last Saturday, was conceived at the time and the day we moved into our house in Seattle. Oh, wow. And then that was in 1990. We moved to Seattle in 97, we were we came down to Portland
0: when it was just amazing. And, and there was a lot of work, and you were probably involved in a lot of building. A lot, a lot.
1: It, it's real funny. We live in Happy Valley, which is like on the other end of the world. It is. Most of Compared our, to here it is. Yeah, yeah. Most of our work is in Southwest Portland, is Skyline. It's in Beaverton. It's for Nike execs. It's for all of these people over here. But yet we live in over in Happy Valley. And it's like, I wish we had known that when we built our house. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's just changed so much that I just, I'm at the point I want out. Where would you go? I would go to where people are treated as people regardless of their skin color, their thoughts.
0: I where go, is that?
1: Strangely enough, places that I found it, Thailand, like the Thais that were taking care of me, I found that in Mexico in certain um.
0: So do you think you have to leave the country? I mean, are you contemplating? <laughs> I am doing contemplating that? leaving the country. What was your tipping point for saying, "I th- I think I need to, I think I need to leave"? There's too much. There's so much division here that no matter what you say, you're wrong. Was it a specific instance that gave you this epiphany that you should probably get out, or was it just the culmination of a lot of events?
1: I think it's the culmination of. Remember when everyone was handing out the safety pins and all of that? And I'm just looking at these people, thinking,
0: "This is who is going to run our country." Wait, tell me about the. I actually don't. What was the safety pins? They were giving out safety. It was. It was a sign of safe place.
1: It was that during. I, I don't even know during how. Twenty it, twenty. It was a little bit longer. Um, oh really several years before that I believe if I'm like what
0: downtown they were handing them out
1: it was like a national thing um
0: oh wow okay
1: and it was a lot of you know here's your safety pin here's your safe place here's your this here's your that a lot of the catering to whims to me
0: were they it, literally handing out safety
1: pins? Safety pins. They okay. would wear safety pins on their
0: on their shirts. Wow, I'm surprised I missed this one. You know, maybe I just memory hold it. It. There's a lot of stuff. I'm like,
1: I don't want to hear it. You know, I just can't. I don't. I don't want to. We be don't polarized. have the energy for that. I don't. You've got I,
0: enough going on without taking on all of these people's pathologies. Yeah, exactly.
1: And. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Basically, is how it comes down to, unless you run into some idiot that's trying to kill someone with a knife
0: over a cupcake. (laughs) You know, it's. Well, and even then, treat them how you'd want to be treated because if that were you and you were on some kind of meth binge running at somebody with a knife, you'd want somebody to stop you. Uh,
1: That's true. That's true because.
0: That's yeah, true. you wouldn't. You wouldn't want to be implicated in a he, in he, a murder. He, ex- yes, no, and in, in, if you're in your right mind, which is right. kind of what we're talking about, because there's right. there is this, you have to when you're dealing with the homeless. I think you would have to look at it in a couple ways: how they present currently, and then also how we know they would be horrified by their circumstances, where their brains not hijacked by mental illness and drugs. That's
1: exactly. And that's an interesting topic because so many of the people that I know that are clean,
0: yes, yeah, they're great examples. Absolutely
1: horrified by the things that they have done.
0: Yeah, and if you go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting, you hear you'll hear stories about that all night, Mm -hmm.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. and and about how thankful they are to the police, Uh to the judges, Mm -hmm. to anybody who incentivized them to get where they are today. Right. To their parents who locked the doors. Mm-hmm. To social workers who said you got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. You got to stop. Right. To people that
1: actually were able to get mandatory holds. Right. And get the help that they
0: needed. The the lucky few really. Yeah. Yeah. And you my in my experience that usually dealing with my homeless family members. That usually takes a, su- a suicide threat right. to get a hold. <clears throat> mm-hmm. if, if you're homeless, if you're if you don't have resources, of course. If you're like you and you have a home and you have resources, it all it takes is a couple of um benzodiazepines and a locked yeah. uh, bathroom four door. Four Ambien?
1: Tell me how uh, four Ambiens gonna or I guess Ambien.
0: That's right.
1: Yeah, tell me. I'd like to know. All it did was put me in a stupid hallucinogenic state that was stupid. I remember the psychiatrist looking at me, and he said, Really? You were going to kill yourself? I said, I wasn't going to kill myself. It's everywhere. Read all my records. They're consistent. I wanted peace and quiet, and I knew it wasn't going to hurt me. He said, Well, it was a pretty stupid way if you you were going to do the other thing. I just wanted sleep. That's all I wanted.
0: <laughs> Terry, what what do you want people to take away from this episode? What what if if they get anything out of it, what should it be? I think really question the way they're looking at things, if
1: it's something they feel strongly about or if it's something that they just Know of in in passing, everyone's going through a struggle. Have compassion. Everyone is fighting a fight you know nothing about. When I was at my worst, I would sit in Starbucks, and I would think of everyone that came in. I wonder what their struggle is. I knew what mine were. I wonder what their struggle is. And that was just, that was kind of a, a tipping point for me to realizing everyone, no matter from the homeless to the multi-millionaires, they're going through a struggle of some type. And to protect yourself. Boundaries are so necessary.
0: Where, tell us all the places you are. Where can we find you? You've got, we've got the YouTube channel. You've
1: got my YouTube channel. Um, you know, Terry Anderson, Tattoo Biker Chick, and then we have Digging Through Dominoes. And that's your podcast? That's my podcast, and it, it does have its own YouTube channel, but it is also on all major podcasting platforms. I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook.
0: What's your handle on Twitter? Where do they find you there? At Digging Dominoes. And can people DM you? How do they Oh yes, yeah, of course. Of course.
1: DM me or um, you know, Instagram is the same thing, digging through dominoes. And I don't even know what what my handle is on Twitter for my um, tattooed biker chick. It might be tatted biker chick. I don't know on, on the other Twitter, but all of my videos have my social links.
0: Okay. In the notes. So if they want to get in contact with you, they certainly can, and they can do that through those. And, um, and I welcome them. I,
1: I would love to speak with people that have gone through trauma and how they've overcome it. And
0: so they should feel free to reach out to you. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. in. I learned a lot today. Thank you. I really, really appreciate your vulnerability. I appreciate just being asked.
1: Being able to talk to someone that I know isn't going to throw something at
0: me, (laughs) which is rare in downtown,
1: it really is.